What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Oh my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the Prince of Pro Wrestling, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This is Jimmy Van the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people, my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. We're going to have new tag champs. New champions here. Shoulders are down. No. And somehow Eden English oh, able man. to get the shoulder off. That was close. Whoop. Great agility by Aiden English. Ooh. There goes Murphy. For about 12 feet in the air. Tag made. And now Simon uh -oh. Gotts, the legal man uh -oh. here. Whirling Dervish. Cover. And the tag team champs retain. Here are your winners, and still the NXT Tag Team Champions, the This is the two-man power ship of wrestling, and I'd like to welcome you to another fantastic episode of the two-man power ship of wrestling. As I say usually that this episode is powered by or brought to you by. I'm very, very happy to announce that this episode is powered by the announcement of two-man power trip of wrestling's TMPT Con 2. And that is on May 19th, 2018 in Richmond, Virginia at the Holiday Inn. We are going to present our second two-man power trip of wrestling autograph and memorabilia convention featuring many guests, featuring many vendors from across the United States and special guests coming out the yin-yang. So stay tuned for more announcements. We are very happy to bring this announcement forward on especially coming off a big weekend like we did at WrestleCade. So today's episode is powered by TMPTCon2 and more information to come on our event which will be coming to you live May 19th, 2018 in Richmond, Virginia at the Holiday Inn. So stay tuned as we get closer. There's going to be a lot of information coming your way. 
So with all that being said, welcome to another gigantic episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling. Today we are loaded and I'm going to be a little bit rushing through this intro because this is an over two-hour episode headed your way featuring Simon Grimm, formerly known as Simon Gotch in the WWE and PCW Ultra representative Mike Sharnagel, who's going to be filling us in on the huge PCW Ultra event tonight in California, featuring a big surprise as well as a lot of great individuals and some amazing talent. So stay tuned after our interview with Simon Grimm for Mike Sharnagel of PCW Ultra to find out about that if you're not on the West Coast. But if you have heard of them, you know that they're a stellar organization that does a lot of great stuff. So you're going to hear it directly from Mike Sharnagel of PCW Ultra. But quickly getting into Simon Grimm, this was a fantastic and very fun interview to take part in. Simon Grimm, definitely a one-of-a-kind personality, a lot to say, and definitely does not hold back in any way, shape, or form addressing a lot of rumors that have been kind of filtered out there by either the, quote, wrestling media or former unnamed superstars that have worked with him or people who are still in the WWE who didn't want to come forward. But still, Simon Grimm is going to address every single thing in this interview, as well as kind of take a walk through uh, the formation of the Villains, kind of walk us through what he did in NXT and all the cool things that the Villains were a part of, maybe what could have been with the Villains team, but as they say, you know, you never really know until uh, you, you get that final uh, look from the WWE and what they want to do with you, but we're going to get a nice kind of uh, introspective view from Simon Grimm of what the Villains could have done. So as you prepare to strap in for this interview, get ready, but I want to welcome John in first. John, tell us a little bit more here about Simon Grimm and tell us about this interview and some of the highlights that we have to look forward to in this quite lengthy episode. So strap in, folks. But John, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Simon Grimm? Yes, Chad, back here at the two-man power trip, and we're rocking and rolling with another great guest, a former Adobe superstar. Very recently, a former WWE superstar, and it's always great to get these guys on and kind of get their opinion of why they left and, and what happened and, and this and that. And I won't spend too much time because it is a pretty lengthy interview and it is a pretty lengthy episode. So I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase, and it's just a lot of great answers, a lot of honesty. And I feel like the shackles have been removed and that he will have a great career post-WWE. A lot of these other guys don't want to leave or they're bitter about leaving or or, you know, they're upset that they got released or something like that. But he seemed to have been ready for it. He seemed to have wanted it. And he seemed to be kind of ready for the next chapter in his life and in his wrestling career, which obviously will have to do with Ring of Honor and possibly see him in Japan. And obviously, we'll see him all over the world at all the top independent promotions, PWG, you know, uh, PCW, all the top promotions. So, you know, really be on the lookout for him. And don't think just because his career in the WWE is over for now, don't think that his career is over because now on the independent scene and now in the international scene, these guys can really, really light it up and really start making some money and really start making a huge name for themselves. And I feel like Simon Grimm is one of those guys that is really going to do that. And he's really going to make his mark in the business post-WWE. 
Obviously, we do talk about the release in the interview. We talk about NXT. We talk about all that good stuff, all that fun stuff. We also do have a great convo about Fusion. And yes, I'm sure none of you know what that is, or maybe some of you do. But it's a very rare promotion from the New Jersey realm in the early 2000s. And we were at a show, and we were shocked that Simon remembered the show in such great detail, as did us. And he wrestled Jay Lethal that night, and you hear great, great, great story about that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a little bit of the man formerly known as Simon Gotch, now known as Simon Grimm. Absolutely. And remember to stay tuned after Simon Grimm for Mike Sharnagel of PCW Ultra. Get ready for their huge event tonight. In California, you'll get all the information from Mike Sharnagel about the event, who's going to be there, some amazing legends like Terry Funk and the Sandman and Stan Hansen in attendance. It is going to be quite the happening, so stay tuned for Mike Sharnagel. Enjoy Simon Grimm, and like I said on the top of the show, today's episode is brought to you by the announcement of TMPTCon 2 down in Richmond, Virginia on May 19th, 2018. And we have one guest announced already, and it is the one and only, the boss, Easy e Eric Bischoff will be joining us at TMPTCon 2. So more announcements coming throughout the coming weeks and months to come. It's going to be an amazing event. We're going to be planning a lot of stuff in the next uh, couple months here. So strap in. All the updates will be coming forward to you on these radio waves that are broadcasting to your earbuds right now. So strap in for that, and John, as we do on every show, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's get this show on the road, first to Simon Grimm, and then over to Mike Sharding. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip, and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Now, without any further ado, formerly known as Simon Gotch in the WWE, he was one half of the Vaude Villains, and he was a former NXT World Tag Team Champion. You may know him as Ryan Drago, but we now know him as Simon Grimp. Please enjoy.
joining us on the line tonight is a man formerly known as Simon Gotch in the WWE as one half of the Vaudevillains tag team. He's a former NXT World Tag Team Champion, and now we are ready to know him as Simon Grimm as we welcome Simon Grimm to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here, which is technically my home. I'm here in my home, but I mean, I'm here on the line, too, so it's a pleasure to be on the line. <laughs> well, when you're with the two-man power trip, we, uh, we like to make ourselves at home, so uh, sit back, relax, and get ready to talk a little bit about the world of Simon Grimm. Ah, very good, then. My favorite subject. I thought your favorite subject might be uh, reptilian species, but we'll, uh, we'll cover that as we get a little bit into the, uh, <laughs> into the show here. Oh, we'll get into that. Don't worry. <laughs> so, you know, you're one of the guys that I find very interesting that when you got released from the WWE, you know, everybody jumps on the bandwagon of wanting to be the first interview and wanting to get you on right away. And definitely, I would say we were definitely a part of that. But I love being able to have you on now that you've been back out on the indie scene, a scene that you know very well. And now that we're talking to you just as you completed your debut with Ring of Honor, and I got to start with the uh, with the promo for your debut, which literally sent chills up my spine watching the first 45 seconds of it. What did you think about that video package and making your debut for Ring of Honor? I, I was very glad to make my debut for Ring of Honor. I, If I can be totally honest about the video package, um, so, so here's the story behind the video package in that I actually was the one that shot and edited that. Um, yeah, um, what had happened was uh, the music I had used initially uh, actually is copywritten, and I was waiting on um, my older brother's music. I was waiting on uh, a piece he was, he was actually producing for it, but he couldn't get it done, so I passed it off to the Ring of Honor, and they were just like, you know, I was just going to have and we do it, or uh, added music to it. And when I was through the process, they told me there was actually a, because the original video was actually about three minutes. Uh, the version that got posted was about 90 seconds, I think. Yeah. And the whole thing that happened was it was supposed to be almost like going from the kind of dark, weird, uh, self-destructive, shall we say, uh, portion of the first 45 seconds to this almost cartoonishly 80s training montage and I feel it was when the music got changed. I was like, "Oh, the music is so like heavy that it almost loses that feeling." So on the front end, it's still good, but I feel like the second half sort of lost that feeling. I was like, "Oh, it was because the second half was almost supposed to be ridiculous, and that it's like the whole like the close up of the white belt getting tied and all that it was like meant to be kind of over the top and kind of the British taking the piss to the uh, out of the uh, the training montage thing." So I'm glad you enjoyed it. It, it was just that it's almost that feeling of. When you see the finished product, you know it's like well, it's good. But it's not what I did. It's like, or it's not how I intended it to come off. But people like it. They like it. So I guess, I guess that's good. Yeah, I'm telling you, the first 45 seconds where it was that, it looked like it was like your descent into madness. And uh, I just, I love the <laughs> which is what careers WWE will do. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, no. Yeah, that is what careers WWE will do. The descent into madness. <laughs> I figured I figured you'd say something like that, so I, I'd rather you say that than me. But it's funny, yeah. It, it was this descent into madness, and the way it was shot, and the cuts. It was just, it was so cool and different. And I honestly thought before I saw the second half, my mind was going to Simon Grimm, and obviously being a cool play on a macabre part of the video. I thought we were going to see like a dark side here uh, of Simon Grimm. But then when it came in, I almost felt like it had a Street Fighter uh, vibe to it as well. Uh, with a lot of the, the cuts and the movements and the graphics, but that side—did you ever contemplate maybe doing a grim 
Simon Grimm, where you did have that descent into madness, the way that first half of the video was? Uh, I honestly hadn't considered doing that, part because I spent the last four years doing a character, and I always sort of dissected when I say it, but I feel like well, most of you people point that uh, I'm not really a fan of gimmicks. I've done a gimmick before, I've done a character before, but I, I've always felt like it's a concession that you're not in the ring, which is that you do one. Uh, it's just like if you're trying to sell a product, you know, if it uh, cereal, for example, for kids, you put the toy in because you want the kid to buy it. The cereal, not because the cereal tastes good or it's nutritious, but because, you know, it's, it's got a presence that it was something I feel about gimmicks and wrestling, though. I feel since I've done the last four years as a character, it was really more important to me to show the audience that I'm actually wrestling, that I have a lot more to offer than just, you know, shtick. Yeah, and in that video, too, a lot of the buzzwords that you were using are, are things that might have been thrown out there by uh, people in the wrestling media or other wrestlers uh, taking to social media. Uh, so you're, you're, you're going in and out now. Come try that again. Okay. No, I see, uh, can, you, can you hear me now? I can hear you now, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see okay. a, bu- a lot of the buzzwords that popped up in and out of the video were things that were, you know, might have been said by either the wrestling media or speculated or reported upon after your release. So I love the fact that you're able to kind of poke be- behind the curtain a little bit Bring inside a, a, a viewer, like a guy who's watching Ring of Honor, they're knowing about the business. They know what's going on. So did you have that in mind, too, by, by letting the wrestling fan in on your story? Because obviously we followed it. We've seen you from the indies through NXT, through the main roster, and then back out to the indies. So did you kind of put that together as well to show those knowledgeable wrestling fans like just exactly what your story's going to be? Mm-hmm. Not exactly. I, I think it more had to do with the idea that it wasn't so much the knowledgeable wrestling fans. I think the people who are genuinely knowledgeable and who've sought out the, the information about me, like the genuine information, as opposed to just reading a, you know, a headline read by, or written by someone who has a subscription to the Wrestling Observer and a Reddit page, um, that they're aware of my story and what happened, whereas I think a lot of the audience isn't. They just know sort of half-heartedly what they've heard a fifth hand, and I felt it was more of a jab at them. It was like, oh, you know, if I call my basically, if I call this stuff out, if I bring it up first, it's not going to be someone else's job to do it. They're kind of going to have to look. It's almost like if I admit that I'm the alcoholic before the the intervention starts, you don't really have much of an intervention. Now you just have to move on to the treatment. So I I took that route of if I just sort of concede all this stuff on the front end, whether it's true or not, at least then they're going to focus more on what the video is and not so much on ripping it apart. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I completely agree. Then let's get down to the actual uh, getting back in there with Ring of Honor, getting out into the crowd, getting out into the Ring of Honor ring. How was that experience, and what was that uh, What was that reception like when you finally stepped through the ropes? Uh, it was fun. Um, people seemed to be happy I was there, uh, so that's always nice. Uh, it was, yeah, I got to work with uh, Josh Woods, who was actually a friend of mine. I know him from NXT. We actually trained at the... He's a coach at the uh, MMA facility I train at, so that, that's nice to be in there with someone I know. Uh, John Grisham, who I've known sort of through me- social media and stuff for quite a few years, um, as well as uh, getting to do a, a tag match with uh, Flip Gordon, who's, I'm, who's I'm new to. I've only just recently found out about him, as well as the dogs, uh, I, uh, Rhett Titus and uh, and Will Farrar. And I found out, I guess, uh, Will Farrar was actually at my WWE tryout. I didn't know that. And he, he was uh, he's like, hey, you're very nice to me. I was like, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, but I'm glad I was nice to you because now I get to wrestle you, and that's you know, a nice change of pace. 
Yeah, no, that's definitely that's a great change of pace. But then how about the fact, like, you know, you've been out on the road now for a couple of months, and what did you expect kind of getting back into the indies? Did you see this boom that everybody's been talking about and this buzz that surrounding the independent scene? Did you see that as you were stepping uh, back into the uh, the independent world? Well, I'd seen it going on for a while, and I'm I'm actually really close with Sammy Callahan, so I'd uh... – I knew firsthand what was going on with a lot of it because Sammy had, uh, from the time he asked for his release until, you know, right up to now, he, I mean, he's actually, I don't know if he's over there right now or he's going over soon for New Japan for the uh, the tag the tag league. Um, but I've seen a guy who was basically screwed with, uh, mishandled, mistreated by the WWE system go, you know what, I know what my value is. I know what I'm capable of. I'm going to go prove you guys wrong. And he left and he did just that. And it's, uh, he was the whole time. He was like, "Dude, I'm making money. I'm having fun. I'm not having to report to the PC every morning. I'm actually enjoying my career again." And it was you. Could, I started looking around and noticing that a lot of the guys on the indies. It wasn't like when I I broke in in 2001, where it was, you know, you had three or four guys who were making full time livings, and everybody else was lucky to make 50 bucks. It, it's an actual. You, it can be a job now, which is a huge change of pace. Yeah, it can be, and we've seen it with a lot of the promotions that we've worked with, how the reception is different, and now when fans go to an independent show, like they're actually seeking out you know, match quality and literally analyzing everything, whereas when we used to go to independent shows, and, and John and I talk about it, and I know John's going to bring up to you an independent show from New Jersey from the early 2000s. When we used to go to the indie shows, it was to see whoever the legend was that was on, get a Polaroid, and be on our merry way. Now, independent wrestling is an event in its own. And every show, no matter what promotion you do, they try to build it up like it's their next big super card. And that has to be a gigantic leap from the last time you really, like, especially when you broke into the independence. Oh, yeah. And that was one of the big difference makers, too, is that a lot of the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the cards were sold on the pretense of, you know, we have this guy who wrestled for WWF in 1985 coming out to sign photos and take pictures with you, or we've got this guy who was NWA U.S. champion in 1991. It was never really about the independent card. It was never about the guys on the card. It was more about those things. And going back to actually kind of Ring of Honor starting in 2002 uh, really changed independent wrestling because it was the first time you had these guys who were maybe big names in the independent scene in their regions, you know, your Daniel Bryans, your Christopher Daniels, your Brian Kendricks, Loki, uh, even some guys like uh, uh, Paul London or uh, uh, the, uh, the Hit Squad, guys like that, where maybe in the one or two small regions there were big names, but they weren't necessarily known nationally. But as the internet was getting bigger and tape trading was getting bigger, you had these guys, you had an opportunity to really build an actual promotion with these guys, and they did that. And it went from where you would pay to see, you know, like I said, whatever WWF legend or WCW legend and the card was almost secondary, you were now paying to see the card itself and paying to see the guys. Yeah, and those Ring of Honor shows in the early days, I mean, we know them very, very well. I mean, these guys, the first time that you were really going to an independent where guys were traveling from other parts of the country that you just read about, and it's like, wow, I get to see this guy, uh, Brian Danielson, who I've read about in you know, the, uh, you know, the old school magazines or seeing the guy like Punk or Cole Cabana coming from Chicago or seeing somebody like a Paul London and Brian Kendrick coming from the other side of the country to Pennsylvania where Ring of Honor was a regional promotion, sort of. It was all in Pennsylvania, New Jersey before it expanded. But it was Ring of Honor like the like the destination for you to watch 
when you started to break in because it was so diverse and it had such a great uh, just a, a roster that literally is now the the current day you know megastars of professional wrestling. I think for a lot of guys in that era who were coming up, that was one of the definite places you saw as the goal to get to. Um, as far as independent wrestling goes, it was the height. It was pretty much the biggest company in the in the U.S. It had the most attention anyway. And then you, it'd be followed by, you know, you had groups like CCW, uh, IWA Mid-South that were getting a lot of attention. And to this day, I mean, out of that whole sort of first generation, shall we say, indie boom that happened with in 2002 in the sort of the wake of ECW and WCW closing, you had uh, the only ones that are really left are IWA Mid-South, CCW, and of course, Ring of Honor. And Ring of Honor has expanded nationally. Uh, CCW is still, you know, running regularly in the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, IWA Mid-South somehow is hanging on, even though it's had, obviously, its ups and downs. But in part, the reason these promotions stick around is because of the talent. And that's something that's, it's a testament to the guys involved with it, because it's so easy to see a promotion go under when, you know, their their veterans either get signed or they retire and get out of wrestling altogether, or when guys just quit or when they move away or get a better job, whatever, whatever it is. But now it's getting to the point where there's almost that continued refilling of talent that there used to not be. There was a period where maybe five, six years ago, like between 2010 and 2013, where a lot of indie guys were getting snatched up and there was that fear that, you know, without guys like Claudio and uh, Neville and American Dragon and Loki, they're all getting snatched up by WWE. There's that fear that the indies were kind of going to suffer really badly. But a lot of guys stepped up and actually started really delivering. And all of a sudden, it went from where it looked like the indies were going to go in the toilet to where they started thriving better than they ever have before. Yeah, and I don't know how many people remember the fact that when Ring of Honor was starting and was so red hot and everybody was talking about it, and, you know, like you said, the tape traders and the, uh, you know, so I, I wouldn't consider it the early days of the Internet, but for some people their first Internet wrestling exposure was Ring of Honor, that whenever a star came through there, they were vehemently booed. And I can remember Jeff Hardy uh, coming into Ring of Honor about 2003, 2004, getting legitimately booed out of the building. And you think that would happen in 2017, no way. So you see the reverse now of stars who have been in the WWE going to Ring of Honor, and it just seems like the entire state of their business has evolved because everybody now has a home. We've seen Bully Ray come through there. We've seen a lot of veterans pop through, and now you joining. I, I think it's so cool to see Ring of Honor uh, completely evolve and now works everybody into the mix. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's really a testament, once again, to the audience and obviously to the uh the guys in the in the company because they they know that there's a better way to mix them in. I mean, I think when Jeff came in originally, beyond the fact that it, it was that feeling of it was still a war, like there's still that us versus them mentality, and it was with the guys who were in that age group to where they sort of gotten in, into indie wrestling because they didn't like WWE. So seeing someone coming from WWE, with the exception of a few people, was kind of most. It was almost like seeing the if you want to equate it in WCW. Uh, WWE like Monday Night Wars time, it was like seeing an enemy come in and join your team. You know, it was like seeing the uh, Brian Bosworth, I think it was, uh, getting traded to uh, Colorado or to I think it was Colorado. I can't remember. Uh, then yeah, to Denver. I'm sorry. Um, and they're making shirts to say who's Brian Bozo, and the reality was Brian Bosworth was the guy producing the shirts because he knew he was hated where he was going. Um, but in that same vein, now the people that are watching independent wrestling aren't necessarily 
they haven't necessarily gone to independent wrestling because they're angry at WWE. They've gone to independent wrestling because they like independent wrestling because they are wrestling fans at first and foremost. So they don't have that same sort of animosity that the early uh, independent wrestling fans had, uh, which is a good thing because that allows people more opportunities for more interesting matches. I mean, there's a point where someone told you you were going to get to see, you know, uh, the Briscoe brothers and Bubba Ray versus uh, the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. You might have been like, yay, 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 boo. But now it's just yay across the board because you're excited to see what's going to happen. Now, for me, I remember my first experience seeing you, and I don't even know if you'll remember the show because it's just... So oh, I remember the show. Oh, it's not random at all because that's a show I tore my ACL at. I know the exact show you're talking. Oh, I know exactly where you're going. Uh, it was uh, myself and Jay Lethal. It was in the Rawway Rec Center. Um, or was, I believe it was, was the Rawway? No, yeah, it was the Rec Center, yeah. No, it was the Rexplex, I'm sorry, because it got torn down because I got told that like a year later. It was one of the... Yeah, and Elizabeth. It was one of the last wrestling shows they did there. It was Jay Lethal's hometown. Um, but yeah, I told ACL during that match. Uh, for Fusion Pro, I believe it was, which was co-promoted by, I think, Rob Feinstein, uh, the uh, SATs, and Evan Courageous. <laughs> what a group. So ne- ne- never doubt my memory. It's whenever, this is the one thing I will say. Whenever something comes up in wrestling and someone asks me, like, I've been wrong one time. And it was purely a misunderstanding that I was wrong, and I felt horrible about it, but I've only been wrong one time when it comes to my memory on this sort of stuff. And I will admit this right now. Uh, uh, Pete Gass, I was talking to at a, at a signing, and I forgot that it wasn't Rod- that there was a, that Rodney, and then there was another guy named some- it was like something green. But I thought it was, for all these years I thought it was Rodney Green, but it, was, uh, it wasn't. And I, I felt embarrassed because this was the first thing I'd gotten wrong in quite some time. But, uh, yeah, my, my memory's pretty solid on that stuff. And once you don't really forget when you tear your ACL. Yeah, definitely. And that's Willie Green, a, a very unknown member of the Ex- industry posse. But that, yeah, that was the one. Because he said the same thing. He said, no, it was Willie Green. I was like, damn it. I thought it was Rodney. Because I always just thought it was they, they never said Rodney's last name. I thought they just dropped it all these years. And then I really, when he said that, I was like, oh, my God, you're right. How did I forget that? <sighs> it felt terrible. <laughs> so how... How did the ACL injury occur against Jay Lethal that night in, uh, you know, uh, 2004 New Jersey? Uh, well, I, I sprained my knee actually uh, about four days earlier. I think it was three days earlier in a uh, tryout match for Prosing Noah, and I went for I my knee had swollen up really bad, and I didn't want to miss the show, so I just took a ton of ibuprofen to get the swelling down, but my knee was still messed up. So I went for the uh, triangle and Zaguri, the run up the ropes uh, head kick. And the ropes were rope ropes, not cable ropes, which I was used to, and they were loose. So as soon as I stepped on the top rope, it hyperextended my knee, and it just went. I just felt it pop, and I hit the kick still. And if you watch the tape, you can see me roll over, and the thing I said to Jay is my knee just went. And he he goes, you want to finish, or you want to take it home? I went, no, no, we only got a little bit left. Let's just finish. So if you watch the rest of that match, you'll notice I get up, and I'm sort of having trouble standing, and I I throw a really half-hearted spinning back kick where it's just like I barely bring my foot off the mat because I can't, I can't move my leg. So that was fun. Crazy kind of um, set of, uh, of, of matches in that, in that show. And obviously you and Jay Lethal were kind of like the two standouts as far as like, oh, these two were possibly the two next young guns. Did it take you a while to heal from that injury? Uh, it did because I wound up tearing my ACL on my other knee about two weeks later. 
Oh my god. That was, I was out for almost, I was out for about nine months. Um, I had surgery in I think February and uh, April and May. I think it was February and April maybe. And then my first match back was actually a, a Ring of Honor Dark match with Oliver John in New York. Uh, it wasn't Final Battle. It was the event before Final Battle uh, in 2005. I want to say it was like a Steel Cage something. Uh, I, I know Abyss was there. They did like a big Steel Cage, uh, um, like a War Games match. I don't remember the exact name of the event, but Brett Titus was actually there, and he brought that up that uh, we met at that event. Uh, when he was still a young boy, I was, but uh, I was actually yeah. oddly enough, I was at that show as well. It was a damn good uh, show. They actually called it, if I remember correctly, Steel Cage Warfare. Was there we go? Movie. That's what it was. But that there was, we go. Uh, See, that was a good show. Yeah, look at that. Uh-huh. We're uh, knowing about these. Uh, well, I was at these shows, and you're at these shows. It's kind of uh, random. We're very, uh, very surprised that your memory is so good. Uh, as I said, I, I'm fairly I'm fairly good at remembering things, and I'm decently honest, so I, I do my best. Now, as you're kind of coming through the ranks, you know you're doing your ROH, you know, pretty much an ROH tryout match. You're going through a NOAA tryout match. Is there any uh, deterrence of you that you know how come I'm not signed, or how come I'm not you know further along on the independent scene at this point? Yes. Um, what had happened was, in part, the match with Jay was got. I got a lot of good press off of it, and a lot of people seemed to like it. But the problem was, it was almost a year before I could wrestle again, so it. Yeah, I didn't really get to capitalize on it, and that was also still at the point where, beyond the fact that I live in California, so it was hard to get out of there because a lot of promoters, even if they wanted to use you, would be like, "I can't afford to fly you out. I'm sorry." And I, I heard that more than once. I had contemplated moving to the East Coast a few times, but it was ultimately a financial thing where I, I couldn't afford to do it. So I was kind of stuck, and uh, I worked a bit in Los Angeles, and I was hoping once again to get some more uh, attention off that, but it never really seemed to come together. Eventually, what that led to was why I moved to the Midwest uh, to work for Harley Race, because at the time, I was he had the deal with Noah, and I was still trying to go to Japan. Uh, but yeah, there, there was some frustration there more than a few times. I... Uh, I think there was a point where I'd done the math and like some like seven or eight guys I'd wrestled had actually gotten signed to somewhere, either uh, Japan or TNA or WWE. And there was that, that realization. It was a little depressing that, uh, that that had happened. And I, I still felt like I was struggling to even get a booking sometimes. So what was it like with WLW and with Harley race? Cause obviously Harley race is a pretty big legend in, in the history of the business and uh, also known as a pretty tough, legitimate uh, badass as well that that is what they say i mean that, that's the thing is about you gotta understand by the time i met harley he was you know a 60 year old man uh so it, it was a very different person uh, he was always very nice um he would be oddly funny unintentionally sometimes uh where it would be like he one day we were going to do a show in up by kansas city uh his training facility was about two and a half hours away from kansas city so he calls me into the office and he's like, yeah, boss, what's up? And he just starts going, if you're going up north uh, to Kansas City, take the 208 instead of the 114. It'll take you right around the city and you won't need to worry about the traffic for the airport. <laughs> and I just sit, I just sit there for a second and go, okay, cool, thank you. And I, I, I walk out, <laughs> but it's that moment where I'm thinking to myself, did he seriously just call me in there to tell me that? That was it? That was just... So he wasn't trying to be funny, but uh, it would be things like that where sometimes he or he would uh, 
I was practicing. Uh, a guy wanted to see how to take my finish, the Tiger Driver. And I was setting it up and showing him how to take it. And Harley yells from his ringside, when you're giving him that double underhook suplex, make sure you let go at the top so he can fall flat. Okay, boss, you got it. And uh, Jack uh, Gamble, the guy I was working with, he looks at me and goes, what was Harley talking about? Oh, he thinks we're doing a butterfly suplex. I, I just figured it was easier to uh, accept his, you know, his advice and not, not try to explain to what I was doing because I figured that might become a longer conversation. That wasn't necessary, uh, but uh, now that I spent quite a few years there, and it was uh, miserable. Um, not the wrestling side of it; the wrestling side obviously was fun, but the town itself, uh, this small little nothing town in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, called Eldon, um, was just the worst place in the world. And I know uh, more than a few guys uh, came through there: uh, Tommaso Ciampa, um, Beer City Bruiser, uh, Steve Anthony. If you're familiar with him, he's out of uh, Louisiana. Really, really talented guy. Um, but a lot of these guys sort of came through and, uh, spent a few months there and it was more the city than the wrestling that they couldn't handle. Like they were fine with the wrestling. They were fine with the training. It was just Eldon was a miserable place. So living there for an extended period of time was hard. I, I lived there for almost five years and I think I wanted to blow my brains out about every 30 seconds. That's gotta be rough because, you know, you, you get positive feedback, you get positive reviews. Obviously you're on somewhat of Ring of Honor's radar at one point. You were on Pro Wrestling Noah's radar at one point, pretty much when Pro Wrestling Noah was the hottest thing in, in Japan. So how do you kind of get that look from WWE and from NXT? Is that through Harley Race, or, or how, are, you know, how are you getting noticed? Indirectly, yes. Uh, Harley was getting me on uh, extra talent spots, obviously, with uh, WWE when they would come through town. And you usually got three or four opportunities to do that a year because they do like Nebraska and Iowa as well as uh, Kansas City and St. Louis. Uh, what it come down to was I was turning 30. I was 29 at the time, so I was turning 30 soon. I had kind of a freak out. Um, and I kind of chased down William Regal at a, uh, at a taping. Uh, and what had happened was this was in 2012. In 2011, so about four months earlier, uh, Regal had seen me at Harley's camp, and he put, he was very positive about my work, and it was one of those things where I kept waiting for the, and your WWE tryout's going to be on this date, and that never came. So uh, when it came time for me to actually sort of talk to him at the taping, I kind of put it all on the table and said, look, I'm turning 30 in about 10 months. I've been doing this for a long time. I can't really seem to get any traction. What should I do? And he looked at me, and he said, you look like one of those old-timey strongmen. Put together a video like that, send it into the company. And I did that. And that got me a uh, extra talent spot at Raw 1000 where they took a look at me, which in turn got me a tryout uh, in FCW that October, which in turn got me a job the following summer. And who did you wrestle on your tryout? Uh, the tryout match I had at TV was uh, Xavier Woods. Uh, then uh, at the actual tryout, I think I had one like three-minute match with uh, Muhammad Ali Vaez, who was an OVW guy, if I recall correctly. Now, how do you go from basically the point where they see you, they like you, obviously Regal wanted you, know, wanted you, and they basically put you in FCW for you know, a, a short period of time, they give you a tryout, you have a tryout match. What's the process after that where they're like, we love this guy, you know, we want to sign you? Is that where like, uh, a Triple H or a Johnny Ace gets involved and then you hear from them? Well, what had happened was I had uh, Triple H came out and actually watched my whole match when I did the match with Xavier Woods at TV. Uh, he was very positive about it, uh, and it was from there. It was 
pretty much just like I was getting told by a couple people, uh, Rod Zapata, the referee, is, he came to me and said, you're getting signed. And I went, well, are you so sure? He said, Triple H doesn't watch matches. You're getting signed. Don't worry. So that was kind of his way of saying, like, he came out here to watch your match specifically. He wants to sign you, whether you do bad or good or whatever. He wants to sign you. Uh, so I uh, I did the FCW or the tryout at FCW uh, in that October, and then that December I got told by Regal when he came back to Harley's that uh, they're interested in signing you. You're probably going to get a call in the next couple of weeks. And I think the next week I got a call from King and Seaman, who works in uh, uh, talent relations, who's just said, like, who told me they were extending the offer of contract to me and that it would uh, be uh, basically starting as soon as it opened the PC, which at that point was supposed to be, I think, mid-March and wound up being uh, July 8th. Is that a hard thing to kind of wait and wait and wait and know that they want you, but you kind of just basically in a holding pattern? Uh, it was, but I was also on unemployment at the time, so I didn't really have anything else to do. <laughs> that was the one plus side. I was on unemployment. I was on unemployment, so I was like, okay. I, can I think my unemployment ran out like a week before I had to leave for uh, Florida. So I was like, okay, cool. I I'm good with that. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a little frustrating because you really do just want to start. And you want to get going because you know that the, you know, the clock's ticking on any idea. And the, the longer you get away from people, like I said, uh, the process for me starting, it was almost a year from when they actually saw me do the gimmick for the first time to when I started. Uh, that's a long time to stay hot on an idea. Obviously, stay hot on the ideas. Where, where We are where we're at right now. Right. Now, as far as, you know, the idea and, and the gimmick, and where does the name come from? Is that like a name generator kind of thing that they're doing, or are you purposely picking the name? Obviously, Gotch has a lot of wrestling lineage tied to it, but are you picking that name? Are they picking the name? How does that work? Uh, they they give you the option. Basically, they, they'll tell you to give a list of possible names that you'd like. Uh, they send them to creative and to uh, legal, and they check to see if they can use them and if they want to use them. In my case, uh, Ryan Ward had said they wanted to use the surname of Gotch and then just come up with a first name. And Simon Grimm was actually the name I pitched with the name Simon. Um, and I think, I don't think I ever actually pitched it with Gotch, but I'd had, uh, but Bill DeMott sat me and uh, the current Eli Drake, uh, former Slate Randall, and the even more former Sean Ricker down because we were getting our names that day. And he looked at it and he said, uh, he took basically, I think it was Simon Grimm, and then there was another one, I can't remember what it was, but he took those two names for the first names, and then Gotch, he's like, okay, which one do you like more? And I told him, well, Simon sounds good. He's like, yeah, I like Simon too. Okay, that's your name. So I, I had some feed, I had some uh, say in it, but it was ultimately the company's decision as to what I was even allowed to use. Did they always want to keep you as a singles wrestler, or were they always kind of looking to pair you up and find, you know, your aid in English and put you guys together and pair you together as the vaudeville? They only ever gave me, I think, one singles match. Uh, like, if you counted the total number of singles matches I had in four years, it was probably less than five. Uh, as far as, uh, in, or I'm sorry, in three years in developmental, I probably had less than five singles matches. And they immediately, I think I was, the first time they tagged me up was with... Uh, Travis Tyler, then they tagged me with uh, Bull Dempsey for a while, and then they tagged me with English. So they actually had me in three separate tag teams. The Travis Tyler thing was just like a one-off, but uh, the me and Bull tagged together for a couple months, uh, maybe like two or three months, like the fall uh, winter of uh, 2013. 
And then when they finally put you and Aiden English together, I guess they felt you guys had the better chemistry. Is that something that's brought up to you? Like, oh, you know, you and Bull weren't clicking as well, but you and Aiden English have this tremendous, excuse me, tremendous chemistry? Um, sort of. They, basically, what I got told was Dusty said that uh, Triple H wants to see you and Aiden English as a team. That was the extent of it. That was that was the extent of the uh, the talk. So if the boss wants it, you know, that's what you do. Yeah, I was going to say, if the, I guess that's good enough for you. If that's what they want, that's what you're going to get. So you end up forming the team. Obviously, you guys become the vaudevillains. You guys have a lot of say in what your character is going to be doing at this point, or are they kind of molding it for you guys? It's a little of both. We we have a lot of say when it comes to things like uh, um, our in-ring stuff, um, but like our entrance, uh, we had to obviously be approved by uh, the office. Like the day we debuted, we had to figure out an entrance because we'd done like we we actually debuted from the time we were told officially we were going to be a team to when we were, we debuted. I think was only about ten days. So we had to put together a whole act as a team, like our double team stuff, our finish, our uh, our entrance, all that was put together within 10 days. A lot of it being done on the day of the first taping we worked on because it was just, you know, like like the entrance, picking the music, things like that, that Triple H had to physically be there to see so as to approve. So we had to do it then and didn't really have a whole lot of time to think about it. It was just like, okay, this works, this works, that doesn't work, do that, do more of this, I want to see that. And we went off with it. And it's interesting, the the gimmick itself is pretty cool, just as far as it being completely different than anything we've really seen them do. And obviously, WWE, they love the entrances, and NXT, each guy gets their own entrance. But with you guys, it was definitely different. It felt a little bit special. It just felt like there was a, a lot put into the entrance. Did you like the, you know, the look of it, the music, the gimmick, the entrance? Did you like that whole combination that they were putting together? I think for what we were doing, it was fine. Um, I liked the initial music for the three songs we had. Uh, and I don't think we had that one for very long either. We only had it for uh, mostly our, like uh, maybe two months, maybe a month and a half, two months. Uh, but uh, I think it, I think for what we were doing, it, so I can't really complain about that. Definitely different, and obviously it definitely had that old-timey strongman, like you said. It definitely had that feel to it. So was it almost them kind of taking off on your idea and kind of molding it to what they preferred? Or was this kind of, you know, basically partially your idea, you know, in, you know, in the origin of it? I think in that regard, it was uh, they sort of took what, what, I'd, what I'd come up with and then what English had done on his own. And they tried to, they tried to sort of twist it into what their vision of it was, which I don't know if I agreed with. Uh, the way I'd always seen the team was basically English was the uh, was sort of the the uh, amoralist thespian who was you know willing to lie, cheat, steal, and kill to get ahead, and I was kind of the uh, the grimy, carny wrestler who was you know is the the muscle backing him up, so to speak. Um, even as uh, babyfaces, I felt that it was still closer to that than kind of the uh, some of what was done with it. But at the same time, you know, part of your job is to try and make whatever they give you work. And it's not always the easiest thing in the world, but it's still your job. Did you and Aiden English get along? I mean, in front of the camera, obviously, 
you guys were, uh, meshed well together and seemed like chemistry was there. But behind the scenes, is that something that you guys worked on? Did you travel together? Did you get along? Uh, we got along for the most part. Uh, we didn't really travel together just because uh, in NXT, it's more you travel with the people you're like, you're like your close friends. So I more traveled with like a lot of the amateur wrestlers, uh, Sammy Callahan, um, uh, Chad Gable initially, guys like that. Whereas uh, English traveled with a lot of the old SCW guys, uh, Scott Dawson, uh, Juice Robinson, uh, you know, guys like that, Sammy Zayn. Those were like the guys he traveled with because those were the guys he was close with. So it was more just, you know, for the sake of work, we uh, we worked together as best we, you know, best we could. But uh, yeah, we got along fine. You know, there's sometimes we got along well. Sometimes it was just, it was kind of like an old married couple where we got along not so well, but it was, it was more just, because we both had this idea we were trying to get across, and it didn't always uh, didn't always mesh with the other person's vision. Uh, I still remember there was a point when we were in uh, Terry Taylor's class in the PC, where we kind of became <laughs> we were somewhat terrors to Terry. We would uh, uh, anything he would say, we would find, we would remember something that he'd said that contradicted it. We would both start shooting. We just sort of like start throwing it out there, like, "What about this, Terry? What about that? You said this. What about this, Terry? What if he did this?" And at a certain point, he actually pulled us aside and asked us to stop doing that because it was interrupting the class too much. But uh, yeah, it was. Like I said, I, we were never especially close. But the reality is, most tag teams aren't. That's a big myth. Um, I mean, you talk to most actual tag teams; they'll tell you they actually hate each other. Which is the the joke I used to tell was, me and English have to hate each other a little bit, otherwise we're gonna get we're gonna get broken up. Because if you like each other, they split your team immediately. Jason Jordan and Chad Gable, j- genuinely friends, you know. Uh, Gable was a uh, uh, part of Jason Jordan's wedding. Split the team up. Uh, who was it? Chris Harris and uh, who's the other one? Um, James Storm. James hated each yeah. other. Yeah, they hated each other. Absolutely hated each other to the point where, as I understand it, at one point you had to call the match with one guy, then go to the other side of the building and call it with the other guy because they wouldn't even be in the same room together. They like refused to. Wouldn't split them up. Literally, one of them had to quit TNA to get the team broken up. And as soon as he came back, what did they do? They put him in a feud. So it was kind of the uh, the stereotype in wrestling. But a lot of people assume if you're a tag team that, you oh, you must be friends. And if your team is, for whatever reason, if you say you're not, they're like, oh, that's why they weren't successful. It's like, no, that's actually not a factor. That it has nothing to do with it. Most tag teams, even the successful ones, hate each other. Because in the end, no one gets into wrestling because they want to be in a team. You know, it's... That's kind of the weird thing about it is that when you're a kid, very few people, if any, dream of being tag team wrestlers. They dream of, you know, main eventing WrestleMania, winning the world title, you know, going to the Superdome and uh, wrestling in front of 70,000 people or going to the Tokyo Dome wrestling in front of 120,000 people. No one is like, man, I really hope I'm tagging in a match in Largo, Florida, in front of 500 people. Like, that's no one's dream, you know? Right, right, exactly. As far as, you know, them putting you guys together, you guys being a tag team, you kind of going through the ranks of the opponents, uh, Lucha Dragons, Big Cass, and Enzo, and then you end up winning the tag titles from Blake and Murphy. Does that hold any weight with you? Were you happy, you know, with your place as far as they gave you the tag titles and it seems like they're going to give you a little bit of a run? At the time, though, you kind of hit the nail on the head with it seems like, you know, uh, to quote Homer Simpson, you know, in theory, communism works. Uh, that was one of those moments where it was almost more depressing after the fact because of that, because they kind of, uh, they kind of false started us a couple of times. Um, initially we debuted and we did the thing with Lucha Dragons and it was kind of, it was almost, they wanted us to be heels and the audience was cheering us. And then we got taken off TV for like six months. 
and they brought us back deciding it was time for us to be baby faces. But it was so out of the blue that people didn't even understand that was going on until I think like two or three weeks with the TV in. And so finally when the titles, it was that feeling of, okay, we finally were on the right track. Creatives behind us, you know, we're going to get this opportunity to show what we're really capable of. This is great. And that is not what happened at all. It is interesting that if there's a certain reaction to, you know, let's just say you were supposed to be booed and you guys get cheered, that they would just pull you off TV instead of going with it. Is that weird to you? Like, why didn't they just go with it and keep the momentum going? I, you have to remember that at the end of the day, wrestling doesn't have to be good. It only has to make a profit as far as the business side is concerned. As far as WWE is concerned, they're not, they're not looking to see because uh, they're not looking at it and going, the VOD villains are getting cheered, that's good. They're looking at it and going, Lucha Dragons aren't getting cheered, that's mask money, merch money, stuff like that that we could be selling that we're not going to get to sell now because no one's going to buy that if they don't like these guys. Um, there, there's a, a guy named Ed Parker who is the founder of American Kempo Karate who used to do a thing where he would draw a line and he'd tell you, make this line shorter. And a lot of his students would try cutting the line in half or things like that. And he said the secret to making this line shorter, and he'd draw a second line next to it that was longer. So that's almost what we'd done is that we were technically getting over when we weren't supposed to. We were getting over his baby faces, and their baby faces were not. So we were making their baby faces look bad by comparison. So it's almost like, oh, uh, we can't really have that. You know, I, That's all theoretical. I don't know that that's what happened. It just kind of seemed like, we were getting a very positive reaction and the Lucha Dragons were getting a very lukewarm one at the time, uh, which is unfortunate because, you know, Manny and Jorge are both really talented guys, but you can't tell the audience what to do. They're going to do what they do. You know, they're going to boo you or cheer you as they see fit. So I, I think it does kind of become that thing where they want more, they have a plan in their head. And if the plan doesn't work out, they sometimes fight that because they can afford to. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like this is 1998 where they're going to live and die by the ratings. You know, there's way more going on right now financially for them. That actually making the audience happy is such a minor part of that. It's not even funny. Yeah, and that crowd, I feel like, dictated a lot of uh, what we saw because you could tell when the crowd was into somebody. You could tell when the crowd wasn't into somebody. And you could do all the editing in the world. You could still see people's faces. You could still see the reactions in the background and know that, you know, they're going to take to a different style of gimmick like you guys were versus, you know, not not to say the Lucha Dragons are like a generic thing, but, you know, it's a mass team. You're going to see some very high-flying things. That crowd, I feel like, wanted to appreciate a gimmick like you guys a lot more than just, you know, your mass wrestlers who were doing a lot of the, you know, the, the Luchador-style moves. And to a certain extent, that's true, but that that's the thing is that if your plan is uh... – Foiled, sometimes you, you don't necessarily know how to react to it. There was a similar situation actually with, uh, with Juice, with CJ Parker and uh, Tyler Breeze, where when they debuted the two of them, Breeze was supposed to be a heel and CJ was supposed to be a babyface. The problem was the whole hippie thing was not resonating with the wrestling crowd and they were booing CJ. And then the whole Zoolander thing that Breeze was initially doing was, and the audience loved that. So they wind up in this really awkward situation where they're trying really hard to make Tyler Breeze a heel, but the audience won't boo him. And they're simultaneously trying to make C.J. Parker a babyface, and the crowd won't cheer him. And eventually, they never really fully turn Breeze babyface, but they definitely turn C.J. heel. And compare, But the problem was, it was like they still weren't taking advantage of C.J.'s actual wrestling ability, which is one of the great ironies. Is He was a very, like especially for as young as he is, or, or especially was at the time, he... Uh, 
was very talented at carrying people at making uh, guys who were not necessarily very talented look good. And they kind of abused that and put him in the role of more putting people over and, and almost as a, like a, an enhancement talent, which is unfortunate because as he's shown now, obviously in new Japan, he's way more talented than that. Yeah. And that's always the stamp that uh, WWE would try to give you on the way out is to kind of downplay your strength. So when he, we heard that he was going to New Japan, you're like, oh, this guy was just jobbing all over NXT, and now he's in New Japan. But when you see him in the ring and you see what he could do, then you go, damn, well, no wonder, you know, they're idiots. How could they let this guy go? And unfortunately, that is what happens, though, you know. You can let, you a lot of time, very talented people wind up getting let go or wind up leaving because they're unhappy, and it's just, it's not the easiest world for the simple fact that you're so, you're a lot, you're going to spend a lot of your time trying to trying to grin and bear it, and some people are great at grinning and bearing it. Some people are not. I I really admit I'm not good at just smiling and saying thank you, sir. May I have another? If I think something's bullshit, I'll say it's bullshit, and that doesn't necessarily win you a whole lot of friends uh, in the shall we say sensitive world of uh, wrestling emotions. Now, did you see NXT becoming this separate brand? That it was. I mean, it's got its own action figure line, its own trading cards, its, its own touring part of the WWE brand overall. Did you see this in the cards when you first got to NXT? Uh, it seemed kind of obvious they were going that route. I mean, it was getting an, a lot of extra attention at the time already. And then to, uh, shall we say, uh, expand on that, they were they just spent $3 million uh, on renovating that building for the PC. You don't invest that kind of money because you're not intending to make it back. Uh, so that a lot of that, I think, was just when you see them laying that much groundwork, you have a feeling more. And even then, the the WWE Network and all that, the live specials, those were all clearly signs that the NXT brand was going to grow. And even when they started doing the first few outside shows with the Arnold Classic and the uh, that little loop through Ohio, it was they initially, I believe, they had like uh, Neville versus Cesaro. Uh, on the show, as well as a big show appearing, because they weren't, they didn't think they could draw with just the NXT guys, and they wound up finding out that not only could they draw with the NXT guys, they uh, were able to actually draw very well with them all over the country, and even in some cases internationally. Yeah, and that first NXT takeover that they put on the WWE Network, they made that to be literally like you were getting ready for the build of WrestleMania with, you know, pre-show panels and, and a red carpet, pretty much, and it became this really cool, uh, and, you know, you felt like you were watching, you felt like you almost had that old ECW vibe. You, were, you felt like you were watching something cool when you were watching NXT, and I think the wrestling fan base has kind of evolved as uh, NXT's evolved because they're seeing all these cool things and they're seeing this stuff. Now, with that build-up to the NXT TakeOver, did you have that feeling that it was they were building it as this, like, quote-unquote, first WrestleMania-style event for NXT? I think they were definitely trying feeling of it being, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with it being cool. Um, I recently heard, uh, I saw a comment from uh, one of the Young Bucks, I, I, couldn't tell, I don't remember which one, if it was Matt or Nick, but they said something about, you know, we made wrestling cool again. And I don't know, if I wouldn't say they made wrestling cool, but they definitely make wrestling fans feel like they're part of something that is cool, which is almost more important than being cool. Um, a lot of people in, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say this is a new thing, but it's definitely something I've observed thanks to the social media, you see it a lot. A lot of people are more interested in feeling like they have some sort of like greater purpose or value or they belong to something bigger than themselves. 
they, they, they thirst for that. They absolutely lust after having that. And in many ways, I feel like when you, with, and with ECW, it was the same way. ECW fans didn't just feel like they didn't just like ECW. They felt like they were part of something special because they liked ECW. They felt like they were, they were that, uh, that kid in the basement listening to the, the Ramones 10 years before they were popular. You know, they felt like they were part of something special and new that if you weren't a part of, you just weren't in the cool click, even though let's be real wrestling fans. We're not exactly the cool kids. <laughs> Traditionally, we're, we're the furthest thing from it. Uh, but I do think that was kind of the feeling that NXT gave people was it was almost like ECW, almost like uh, that sort of punk underground independent wrestling feeling of liking something that's cool before people realize it's cool. But you have to understand that's still from a corporate institution that has millions of dollars to pump into it. So it's almost like a faux independence, which is what NXT kind of became. It's, it's, it's almost phony independent wrestling where it's trying to be like independent wrestling without actually being independent wrestling. Yeah, and you're so right about the you know wanting to be a part of something bigger uh, than it is, and you see it across the board. And the fact that wrestling gets mainstream uh, media attention now in the age of social media literally boggles my mind. Because where the heck was this in 1998? How come the uh, you know all these ESPN and all these other entities weren't reporting on this stuff going on during an era where dare say more people were watching wrestling than ever? But now it's like the fan base is so much more. Uh, intimate that there's uh, fans that are now writing these things that are bringing wrestling in the mainstream. And NXT, i got to say, it was a big part of, uh, I think, people realizing that wrestling was more than just, you know, your big WWF superstar. Like you said, the guy from 1985 who was at WrestleMania. Wrestling has evolved so much, I think NXT's played such a big part in that. It really has, and allowing people to see that evolution is the biggest thing, is... NXT is kind of the last place a lot of indie wrestlers go before they wind up in, you know, on the main roster. So it's really a chance for people to see sort of what indie wrestling is or can be while at the same time enjoying it in the very safe environment of the WWE Network. And which, oddly enough, I think it's had a better impact on uh, independent wrestling than people realize because now people are going, you know, they see someone like a Leo Rush or a uh, AJ Styles or a Samoa Joe or a Finn Balor. They see these guys and they know they had careers before they got here now and they have to go out and look for their stuff. And they start finding, they go to, you know, you go to watch a, uh, uh, a Samoa Joe match and you see a guy named uh, All Ego Ethan Page on the card and you go, oh, hey, who's this guy? And you're like, oh, this guy's really cool. I want to see more of him. And then you watch some, some Ethan Page and you're like, hey, MJF, who's MJF? Oh, hey, this guy's really cool too. And it grows from there, and you have this fan base actually becoming more educated on indie wrestling because of WWE accidentally introducing them to it. Well, what do you think about the WWE Network possibly adding independent wrestling content to the network? I mean, we've heard the rumors about WWN Live and some of the Evolve content. Now, what if, and this is, this is something that I've been thinking about like crazy, what if there's somebody on one of these shows that they want to run on the WWE Network that they released and now they're putting on their network in the spotlight of another promotion. I kind of feel like it's going to make them look kind of stupid, but what do you think about independent wrestling almost making its way to the WWE Network? I, you have to remember, if independent wrestling makes its way to the WWE Network, it's going to be making its way to the WWE Network under WWE constrictions. That's always what you have to remember. It, there, there's a really old clip, I think it's from ICW, um, of a guy who literally drops Trow and teabags his opponent. 
I'm dead serious uh, because I I had seen the clip for the first time uh, recently, and I uh, or rather before I got released, I'd seen it and I brought it up to uh, Noam Dar, and he said, "Oh, that's actually from like ten years ago. That's the guy that trained me." And I went, "Oh, damn! I did not know that." So yeah, no, that's a really old clip. I said, like, "Okay, never mind then," because I just seen it for the first time. I was like, "Dude, what is up with ICW and someone just straight up teabagging another guy? Like, what's up? Like, who does that?" So it was a really old clip, but yeah, like I said, you have to understand is that if you see it in the corporate environment, it's always going to be, well, yeah, there's some guys, like I say, Drew McIntyre is a good example, where he'd been released, but he was working for WWN and doing the Evolve shows. Um, I feel like they probably have a little bit more of a say in who works those shows and who doesn't. I mean, I, I absolutely love Matt Riddle, but I think the WWE, because of Riddle's sort of history with a uh, being very open with his affinity for marijuana, I feel like WWE might not want to touch him. And I could see them not wanting him on WWN shows if they wound up on the network, just for that reason. But they might not care. Who knows? You know, I don't, like, I don't know that for sure. But I do think that if... It, it's the same way with uh, film or television. You know, If you have a filmmaker who's used to making independent movies, uh, Kevin Smith is actually a good example of that. If you look at Clerks and you look at Mallrats, they're two very different films even though they actually have some of the same characters in them. And they, they, you know, they contain several of the same actors as well, but they're different movies because one of those films is Kevin Smith making you know, a low-budget independent film on his own, and the other one is him making a significantly bigger budget uh, in a uh, you know, studio film with a lot of people having a say in it. Great little factoid I got to throw out here. Uh, I personally purchased all of the wrestling videos from RST Video from the Clerks uh, movie. So if anybody ever wondered where all the wrestling videos went, I purchased them in about 2002, 2003. So that's a little little Kevin Smith factoid I could throw out there. You see, there we go. That is a good example of uh, Kevin Smith coming into play as best he can, you know, just just making sure people get wrestling videos in New Jersey. The guy could have cared less. I, we, I, John and I are very local to where all those movies were filmed, and uh, ah. RSD video sat very dormant for a long time, and they would open sparingly, and I went in there. Oh, my God, they were loaded with all the classic Coliseum videos, and I went in there, and I, uh, I bought them all out. So that's a different story for a different day. But I, one of the last things I want to ask before I hand it back over to John here is, you know, with a, a WWN Live or an Evolve possibly going to the WWE Network, that turns NXT from being that developmental minor league to kind of pushing it forward, making it almost on par with the two main roster brands. And now you're bringing in that minor league of an of a independent league like a WWN Live. Now, what do you think about that? Is, is that kind of crazy to you that – NXT would have evolved to almost the full-fledged third brand of WWE. Not really, because uh, well, beyond the fact, I don't, even if they brought it in, I don't think they'd ever really officially make that change. Because you have to remember that the part of the reason that NXT is as profitable a brand as it is, and it is a very profitable brand. Do not let anyone tell you it's not. Um, is because the amount they have to pay the guys is so much less. Um, a friend of mine who was in the, the video game was still in NXT. I guess the uh, NXT guys, because of the number of people in the roster this year, got paid, I think, three grand and no residuals for the video game. And their choices were basically accept the three grand, get no residuals, or don't be in the video game. So, uh, 
like myself, I was on the main roster at the time of uh, 2K, or I was on, I was in developmental 2K16 and main roster 2K17. 2K17, I got paid a very nice sum for, and I even just recently got a uh, another residual check for it for the second quarter. Whereas, and to put it bluntly, it was significantly more than three grand, and but that's why they're able to sort of profit with NXT is because they can always, I hate to say it this way, screw those guys on money. You know, they do the outside shows. They don't get paid any extra for them, regardless of what the house is. So even though NXT might run, say, uh, I think the uh, UK tour, the first UK tour did $3 million in 10 days, I think between all the shows. And that at that point, that had, I think, eclipsed the cost of one year of running NXT as a brand. Those 10 days had made more money than the cost of NXT for a year. But... I think the reward the guys on the tour got, um, I still have mine just because I thought it was funny to keep. So several guys didn't want to keep theirs because they were mad. What um, was a plaque commemorating, you know, the successful tour. And you could see a couple of people fuming like, oh, successful tour, where the fuck's our extra money? Yeah. Be- because there, there's that feeling of, I just made you $3 million. You're not even going to kick me an extra couple hundred. You're not going to kick me, kick, you know, send, give me, you know, even a compulsory, like here's an extra thousand dollars. Here you go. Which between even thirty people on the if there are thirty people on the tour, thirty thousand dollars out of three million. That's nothing. But it was, you know, you're in developmental, we don't have to pay you for that extra stuff. So, you know, your choices are don't do it and possibly get fired or do it and just sort of accept the fact you're not gonna get paid extra for it. So I can see that being a big stumbling block in trying to make NXT a full fledged third brand is that I think a lot of the guys might sort of revolt against that is that if we're not getting paid like these guys, why would we want to, you know, take on that workload? Definitely, which means that these guys will want to probably get called up maybe a little sooner. So what was your main roster call up? Like you get a call from Triple H, from Vince, like who's the person that kind of calls you up to the main roster? In my case, it was Kathy Morrell. Now go ahead and ask, who is Kathy, who is Kathy Morrell? Isn't she the ex-volleyball um, coach or whatever the hell she was? No, that that was Canyon Seaman. No, Kathy Morell is the one of the nice ladies in the travel department. Oh, okay. I knew he had he had. I, there was a female too that did a similar position as him. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, Canyon Seaman is the one you're thinking of. He was the volleyball player. But uh, no, Kathy Morell and Jenna Loeb they do travel for WWE. And I got told at. Uh, 11 o'clock, I believe, or noon on uh, WrestleMania Sunday that I was getting called up to the main roster. I, I got told that because Kathy had accidentally, uh, Mark Carano was supposed to talk to me in English that morning, and he canceled the meeting. Uh, so Kathy had accidentally sent out our travel, our new travel, and basically had to tell us that we were getting called up because of it, because she didn't want us obviously flying back on Sunday or Monday morning with the NXT guys, because we had to stay until Wednesday. So, uh, the same day when I think Baron Corbin, Apollo Crews, uh, Enzo and Cass, they all got told they were getting called up by Triple H on uh, breaking ground. We got told by travel the next day. That is like very the most weird. And- very anticlimactic, too. Yeah, I, even when we got, at one point, uh, when we got told Karana needed to talk to us, uh, English and I were talking. He's like, what do you think it's about? And my response was, well, we're either getting called up or fired because Corona only talks to you for two reasons. So, 
if they're not we're getting called up. <laughs> that is kind of a strange way to get called up um, by some unknown woman or unknown to, to most people in the, in the travel department. Uh, okay. I, I knew Kathy very well. I, I actually, um, Jenna Loeb, if you ever see me on an indie show, you'll usually see me wearing a baseball cap that says hashtag got lobed. And that was a joke because uh, some of the less uh, friendly members of the WWE roster, whenever they were mad about their travel, they would say they got lobed. Like Jenna messed up the travel, even though she wasn't the one that messed up the majority of the time. So she was selling hats that said I uh, said got lobed on them at WrestleMania, and I bought one. So I I call that my travel hat now. So I just whenever I travel to an indie show, I always wear my got lobed hat. <laughs> That's great. I'm sure she uh, she loves that, making that uh, extra gimmick money on the side. It, it says a lot when the people in travel have to make gimmick money. You know, it's. <laughs> Well, they're having the house. I, I kept expecting to see Tim White just come out of nowhere selling uh, used under the giant T-shirts. You know, just it's like no, this, this shirt belonged to Andre. Here you go. Here it's like it's a medium. How did it belong to Andre? It's like oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It was his. Uh, good stuff. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't look good. Uh, yeah. if, if that's yeah. the way they got to make some extra money. And the woman I was uh. thinking of was uh, Kat, uh, Kathy Pertrauer. She was. Um, some talent acquisition uh, for WWE. That's what I thought you were going to say who the woman was. Oh no, no, this was uh, this was Kathy Morrell. This was travel. Yeah. And uh, which, like I said, Kathy's a perfectly nice woman. I didn't really object to it. It was just that sort of thing of you almost have that feeling of how serious are they taking this? If uh, this is how we're getting told, which admittedly is kind of like a concern when it happens. Is that that does cross your mind? You know, like. Everyone else is getting told by Triple H on TV. We're getting told by travel in the green room, like 12 hours before we're getting called up. That is very weird and very different. You would think. You wouldn't really think that's the way it goes down, especially when you see those guys, I guess, for breaking ground the way it happened. Were you not jealous of them, but were you kind of thinking, like, shouldn't we have been a part of that as well? You know, it would have been kind of cool to be a part of that. At, at this point, honestly, I was I just wasn't shocked by anything anymore. Um, I was I I mentioned in more than a few interviews that I was pretty well ready to quit at the time I got called up. Um, so nothing really shocked me. The way, the way I felt like we'd been kind of really badly mishandled our entire run with uh, NXT and with uh, at that up to that point. So I didn't really nothing shocked me. I guess I guess the best way to put it. It was almost like I would have been more shocked if it had been something else. You know, if it had actually gone well, if we'd been. Uh, if it felt like it was something they really wanted to do. And it almost seemed like they were just sort of compulsory, you know, uh, uh, you've been here for a while. I will just call you up. It's easier than, you know, we need more space in the PC. We'll call you up because we don't have room in the PC right now for other people. So we need to, we need to free up some spots and we don't want to fire you. Now, when you get called up to the main roster, was there a frustration there? Because I thought you were used better in NXT, obviously, and on the main roster, was there a lot of frustration with them kind of putting you on TV, taking it off TV, you guys jobbing, you guys doing this and that? Uh, personally, yes. And a big part of that's just because I'm very passionate about wrestling. And I like being able to do it. So uh, when I'm being put in a position where I feel like I'm not even being allowed to wrestle, it, it is pretty frustrating. It's pretty uh, disheartening because you, you don't really drink. I mean, the paycheck's nice, but you don't, when you're a kid dreaming about being a pro wrestler, you're not dreaming about getting paid. You're dreaming about, you know, really doing something. 
about having an impact on the industry and about really sort of leaving your mark on it. So the feeling that you're you're so close, but you're not allowed to do it, that you're like adjacent to your dream is almost worse than not having it at all. It, it's kind of like it's it's worse to be best friends with the woman you love than it is to, you know, not have ever met her. You know, being best friends with her and not being in a relationship with her is like torture, but not knowing her, you're like, oh, I don't know her at all. It's not even a thing. It's not something you have to worry about. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a great point. Now, when you're on SmackDown and they put you on SmackDown, did you kind of see some light at the end of the tunnel? Did you see them doing anything positive or were you still kind of thinking about quitting? It's like, man, they're still, they don't get it. I thought they didn't get it. And I, uh, I was, I, I, was pretty depressed about it the whole time I was on the road. Uh, and a lot of that uh, stemmed from the fact that I didn't think they got it and I didn't think it was ever going to get better. And I wound up being right. Uh, and there would be the random moments where it would feel like it might get better for a second. And then you'd realize, no, it's not, it's not going to change. You know, you'd, you'd pitch an idea, the writers would seem to like it and then you'd never hear anything about it. Or you pitch an idea and you get told, uh, Oh yeah, we'll do that uh, next week on, you know, main event and then main event goes to raw and you're not gonna have a chance to do it on main event ever again. So it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a demoralizing experience in general. Do you ever kind of express anything to the writing staff, like to the road dog or anything like, Hey, can we kind of do something here where, you know, we got so much promise and you know, we, we could, you know, contribute more to the show. Did you ever uh, go to any of the writers or road dog or whoever it may be? Oh Yeah. And here's a fun fact you might you may or may not know in the uh, history of uh, – it is the most passive-aggressive uh, company in human history. But <laughs> absolutely, if people are mad at you, you will never know. And if you tell people, hey, you know, I feel like I can do more, they'll be like, yeah, absolutely, man. You know, we just got to get some stuff in order. Don't worry. We'll work on it. Well, uh, you got that idea pitch? Okay, I'll uh, send that over – email that over to me. I'll, I'll be sure to take a look at it this weekend. And they'd never read it. Or nothing would happen with it. It was like so everyone was afraid of making enemies on the off chance anything good happened to you, but they would not go out of their way for you if they didn't have to. Which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Everything should be up front. It should be a good flow of constant communication. But when you get released from them and, and you know, they basically, I guess, how do they do it? Like, basically, they call you, you know, you get the old FedEx. Like, how does the release go down? Oh, I got a phone call from uh, Mark Carano. I, I usually have my ringer off. I really have my ringer on my phone. And I, I looked at my phone, and so I had a missed call from Carano on a Wednesday. And I, I just thought, it was right after WrestleMania. We'd just done TV the previous day in Orlando. So, I, you know, I'd slept in my own bed that night. And I just looked at it, and I went, I bet I know what this is. And I called him back, and I got told uh, that Vince felt my character had run its course, and they wanted to exercise their option to terminate my contract. And I said, okay. So that was uh, it was pretty straightforward. I, I did I did feel somewhat proud that I think I'm the first person to ever be released that was outright told us because Vince didn't want me. <laughs> um, every, everyone else usually gets like the creator doesn't have anything for you or something like that. I actually got Vince McMahon thinks your character has run its course. And he apparently thought so little of me that rather than, you know, axing the character, he just axed me. So, you know, that's how it goes. Were you upset at all at that point? Because it seemed like you were probably pretty happy because you were so frustrated and so unhappy there. 
I was a bit, there was the initial shock that even if you expect it to happen, you don't really, you're not really ready for it ever. But uh, very quickly, I just was like, okay, well, I got to go get to work now because these paychecks are going to stop in about 90 days. So I started trying to, you know, prepare myself and get ready for indie wrestling and uh, getting some contacts made and getting some booking set up. Now, when you basically enter back into the indie scene, obviously you're very comfortable with it. We kind of talked about Ring of Honor before, and we talked about many of, you know, your independent scenes that we've, independent days or independent shows that we've actually seen yet. But what was it like jumping back in and heading over to England and seeing, like, the basically fruition and then basically being a huge, huge market? Is that something that, you know, you're like, wow, this is great. I'm going to dig my teeth into this. I'm going to wrestle, you know, this guy, this guy, and this guy, and I'm really going to have fun wrestling again. Uh, pretty much. I was just excited to actually get to work again. I, I spent about – I'd spent four years not wanting to think about wrestling because it was my job, and I was able to spend about three months doing nothing but thinking about wrestling because I wasn't allowed to do it. And that helped me tremendously get back in the headspace of, like, a positive headspace for, for the industry. So – Getting to go to England was very helpful and very uh, therapeutic. I got to do a uh, teach a couple seminars while I was over there. One for uh, for IWL and one for the uh, London Le- London uh, Lucha Libre uh, London Lucha Libre, the uh, School of Lucha Libre. There, it's uh, it's actually a promotion that uh, Will Ospreay originally came from. And one of the points I made was that no one gets into wrestling to be miserable. And I was t- a lot of the stuff I talked about was sort of conclusions I'd come to from being able to think about wrestling as much as I had about how wrestling, I feel, has become too formulaic. It's very dogmatic. Uh, we sort of, uh, one of the points I try to make to people, I actually was making this point uh, to a couple guys at Ring of Honor, is, you know, professional wrestling isn't real. So there are no actual rules other than the ones we make up and impose on ourselves. You know, we'll tell someone, you know, heels shouldn't do cool moves because cool moves are for baby faces. Why? It's, you know, oh, because, you know, it'll get you cheered. It's like, so? They know it's not a real fight. They, you know, it's. I don't think the guys who wrote Star Wars were like, man, we got to make sure Darth Vader like eats a baby and you know, uh, poops on the American flag because otherwise people aren't going to boo him. It's like, you know, no, people are going to boo him because he's a bad dude, but they're still going to kind of like him because even though he's a bad guy, he does some cool stuff. You know, it's and you're going to have an affinity for that, but you also know it's that doesn't take away from the uh, the narrative of the story. That doesn't affect the ability to tell a story, to have a uh, enjoyable villain. If anything, it makes it better. But we have a lot of these leftover philosophies from when wrestling was a con, and we still sort of force feed that to people in the business and tell them you have to think this way, you have to do it this way. But there is no have to. There's only what we choose to do. I, If you told someone 20 years ago that Joey Ryan would be making a career out of having people grab him by the nuts – and then take a bump, they would say, that's going to kill the business. You know, wrestlers getting busted with, with drugs and throwing boulders through Burger King windows and beating up women and all these horrible things wrestlers have done throughout the last 40 years just alone have done way more to damage the business than Joey Ryan dick-flipping someone. And the reason is because people knowing it's a work doesn't take away their enjoyment of it. No one in the, like, the majority of the audience knows it's a work. It's not, with the exception of maybe a small percentage for, like, children or people like that. Everyone knows it's a work, and they still come to the show. No one thinks that Kenny Omega is actually an uh, assassin, you know? They don't think he's actually the cleaner. That doesn't prevent them from enjoying his work. And I think that's sort of the challenge for wrestlers nowadays is coming to that conclusion that we're free to be 
you know, these wild over the top characters in any way we want to. We don't have to do it any way other than what, what we what we choose and what we enjoy. And uh there's a quote from David Bowie I'm very fond of, which is never play to the gallery. And it, it simply means that if your work is being done to please people, you're doing the wrong work. Your work should be done to please you. And if it's good work, if it's something you're passionate about, you've given your all into, people will find it and people will enjoy it. But if you're doing you know, work just to please people, you know, you may as well work at McDonald's. You may as well work, you know, you don't necessarily have to do wrestling or music or anything else. You don't have to do art. You can do anything and please people. You can just say yes to people and we'll be happy. It doesn't even matter what it's for. So it's got to be pretty freeing and pretty good to be able to kind of do what you're, you know, do what you do again. Get out there, work, use your work rate, wrestle, be able to show your skills, and then even have some fun with, you know, Jody Fleisch or, or uh, Doug Williams or any of the guys. Eight, done seven. Any of those British guys that you wrestled recently, right? It's got to be pretty freeing uh, for you. It is uh, actually my, one of my favorite matches I've had of all time. Now is uh, it's, it's available on uh, YouTube. Uh, myself versus Car Noir, um, and uh, Car Noir until I think about a year ago was called Black Belt Tom Dawkins, and he changed up his whole stick and he started doing what I can only describe as a Black Swan inspired gimmick. And it's insane. And he does this whole like five minute entrance to Swan Lake and it's brilliant. And he's actually a very good wrestler. He's very enjoyable to work with. He's very athletic. And it was one of the funnest matches I've ever had because we did everything that just the most insane stuff. I mean, there was actually, there was amateur wrestling. Uh, there was traditional British chain wrestling. There was, there were, you know, high spots. There were, there was comedy. There was a point where he Spider-Man kissed me. I'm not we found a, uh, this is, I'm dead serious. You can watch this match online, but there's a point in the match where I attempt to belly to back him off the top rope to the floor. He knocks me off. I go to the floor. I turn around and he's hung down almost like a uh, tree of woe, but outside the ring. And he kissed me. Hmm. No one saw that coming. It was complete. It was complete insanity. We just did like the most insane stuff we could think of. This also prompted me to yell. No means no at him after I, uh, he tried to kick me from the apron. I sweep. I sweeped him. He took a huge face bump on the apron. I grabbed him. I yelled, "No means no," and threw him back in the ring. So, but that sort of stuff where I, we weren't limited to whatever we wanted to do. I mean, we brought a bicycle into the match. And this is the same promotion XWA where uh, Kota Ibushi almost got arrested for uh, for using fireworks near a, a train uh, a train track, which is actually super illegal in England. It like qualifies as terrorist actions. He uh, fortunately didn't hit the train, but he uh, he almost, I would have gotten it. That would not uh, would not have been good, especially Abushi, one of the the greats right now for for New Japan. Well, not only New Japan, but one of the greats for for sure. But as you're starting to talk about some of your favorite matches, I just wanted to wind it down a bit here. And you just mentioned the one against Carrot Noir, formerly known as Tom Dawkins, but. Is there any other kind of favorite matches that you had? I don't know, maybe in WWE or NXT, maybe not, but any other favorite matches that you can think of that pop out throughout your career? Uh, throughout my career, the ones that really uh, jump out, uh, 04, I wrestled, um, I had three I had three that I was very proud of. Obviously, I mentioned the, uh, the Jay Lethal one, which I still think is a solid match. Uh, that same year, I wrestled uh, Nigel McGuinness and Silas Young. Um, God, let's see, oh six, I wrestled Davy Richards, which was a nice one. Um, maybe uh, let's see, is there anything else really notable? Oh six, I had a lot of matches with Oliver John, who actually had the uh, Ring of Honor match with. I always loved working with Ollie. He's actually the guy that trained uh, Jeff Cobb, 
and he's a crazy person and I love him to death and he's the most just one of the most fun people ever to wrestle. Uh, he actually once slapped me so hard I forgot the entire match and we had to go on the fly because I couldn't remember. And he, he hit me and all I could think was, wow, he hit me really hard. And then he hit me again and I went, oh God, I got to move or he's going to hit me a third time. So I just rolled off the apron and we, we kept, I, like, we got the floor. I was like, yeah, dude, I forgot everything. So, okay, we'll just go. Don't worry. So we just went on the fly with it. Um, but uh, more recently, uh, I had a couple of matches actually in WWE I was very proud of that no one saw. Um, a couple of house show matches with uh, Claudio, uh, with uh, Antonio Cesaro and uh, Neville that were really good. Um, I was very proud of those matches. Uh, no one saw, of course, because there were house shows in Tennessee. Uh, then recently, actually, I had a match with uh, Tom Lawler, uh, UFC fighter Tom Lawler over in uh, Prestige Wrestling up in Washington. Or, well, I'm sorry, it's in Oregon. I thought it was Washington because I flew into Seattle, but it was actually the promotions in Oregon. Um, but uh, that was a wonderful match that I really feel like if a lot of people should take note of because it was a, uh, an example of using MMA-style work in a pro wrestling match and not having it take away from it too much because Tom, obviously, is a professional fighter. I've done some training in jiu-jitsu and stuff, so I was able to work with him very well. And we didn't have to go through... It, it was that sort of thing where on a lot of cards you'll see the same stuff every match. It's one of my one of the big pet peeves is, you know, be different. Don't just don't just do different stuff. Like, be different. Figure out how you can put your match together in a different way that people aren't going to necessarily expect. You won't have to worry about what anyone else is doing because no one's going no to be able to copy it. So... Um, me and Tom on a card that had, you know, Billy Gunn and Bull James, you know, and these are guys who are great wrestlers. They, you know, Billy did a very entertainment centric match with uh, one of the young guys there. Uh, Bull did a similar match or did like a very like traditional pro wrestling match with uh, another one of their guys. Um, you had uh, me and Tom doing almost like a work shoot match. You had, uh, you know, high flying on the show, but uh, the match itself was just like a good example of it doesn't always have to look the same. It doesn't always have to be, you know, tackle, drop down, hip toss. There are other things you can do. And it's about finding those things and really figuring out what you do well. Really cool kind of to see a guy like you break out of WWE and actually be, you be happier for it because, you know, you have such a good ability and you have a great work rate where it's like WWE really kind of holds guys back. And sometimes, you know, we've always hear stuff like, oh, they tell you to slow it down or they don't want you to do this in the match, but they don't want you to outshine this guy. Is that really, you know, a great selling point for you to really, you know, find happiness in the Indies where no one is going to be able to hold you back? Uh, honestly, the uh, the biggest thing for me is just is the creative freedom, because at least then if I, I feel like if I fail, I fail because I failed because I did something I did not bring enough or I didn't bring the right thing to the table, whereas when you're constantly being told what to do, it's it's hard to feel like you even have control. Um, to give a, this was an actual example, and it came from the, uh, as I mentioned before, the Claudio uh, Neville tag match. There was a spot I did with Neville where he, I attempted to hip toss him. He went to turn it into a body scissor, a wheelbarrow, and then I stalled him out, half Nelsoned him, popped him out, and gave him just a standard suplex. And after the match, Arn Anderson told me that's the most spectacular thing I've ever seen in my life, but you're a heel. And there's that feeling of, so I'm basically getting told I'm not allowed to wrestle well when that's the whole thing I've been focusing on being able to do my whole career. Um, well, another quote that I, I, I greatly enjoy, it's uh, Steve Martin. There's a, uh, it, it came from a weird place too. He did this uh, like uh, masterclass series online 
and there's an ad for it that would pop up on YouTube, and he has a line in it or a comment in it where he goes, "A lot of people come to me and they ask, you know, they're new to comedy and they go, okay, how do I get headshots made? How do I find an agent?" When their first question should be, "How do I be good?" And I feel much the same way about wrestling. Is your first question as a wrestler should be, "How do I be a good wrestler? How do I be good at the art of wrestling?" Uh, and I think too often people go the wrong way with it. They go, oh, you know, it's just about making money. It's, well, if it's just about making money. We could do anything to make money. I mean, I could go sell drugs right now and make money. I don't do that because it's illegal and I don't want to. It, those are the two reasons. I don't want to sell drugs and, you know, it's illegal. I don't want to get shot over something with some crackhead. I wrestle because I like it. I wrestle because I enjoy it because I'm passionate about it. So being in an environment where I'm not allowed to be passionate about it, where being passionate about it is actually a detriment to your job is as I said, very disheartening. Whereas on the indies, I actually get the opportunity to do what I want to do. I, I said before, I'd be open to returning to WWE and I always have the modifier of under the right circumstances and the right circumstances would have to be ones where I wouldn't feel like I needed to censor myself in ring to please uh, someone else's image of what pro wrestling should be. Now with you, you're one of the guys, some guys that get released from WWE, it's almost like, okay, you know, they're gone. They might not be ever heard from again with you. It's going to be interesting to see where you land on the indie scene. Obviously, Ring of Honor, there's some great matches to make there. Is there any dream matches for you that are out there that are, you know, foreseeable that you're like, man, I got to wrestle this guy. I really want to wrestle this guy. You know, it's got to happen. Um, off the top of my head, uh, I think Zack Sabre is probably the big one. Um, uh, stylistically, I think we have a lot in common, and I do feel like we'd probably mesh very well in uh, in a match. Um, really, he's the he's the shall we say him. Another match with Riddle, I'd actually really like to do, uh, just because we only got we did the one, but it was in it was in England, and so it's going to be kind of a limited audience that sees it in the U.S. But uh, yeah, a lot of the guys like that, the the ones who are really the the, the straight wrestlers, they're kind of the guys I like to work with. Um, obviously if I can work with a flyer or someone like that, like a Darby Allen, he's really, you know, I got to see him and, uh, who is it? Uh, him and super crazy, actually great stuff. I mean, Darby's got a wonderful future ahead of him if he stays healthy. Uh, but guys like that, you know, there's some, so many young wrestlers now coming up that would be fun to work with. Even guys like Callahan, who I'm, you know, I'm close with, but I've never gotten to wrestle. Actually, uh, I, I did a four way with, it was myself, space monkey, who is the greatest of all time. Love space monkey. Um, uh, B-Boy and uh, who's our fourth guy? Uh, um, uh, KLD from uh, St. Louis. And uh, Benny, B-Boy, the first, it was the first time I'd seen him in like probably seven, eight years. And he's like, have we ever wrestled before? I said, no, we have here. Oh, man, I've known this guy like 15 years. This is our first match. And it was just fun to finally like guys I've known for a long time I've never got to work with. I mean, I've, uh, I was actually going to have a match with Joey Ryan in England. I didn't get to because the show got canceled. But it was—I uh, was really looking forward to it because I hadn't wrestled Joey in like 13, 14 years. So it was going to be, you know, a fun thing to do. But yeah, there's so there's so many guys out there now that I don't even know that I could narrow it down. I could just throw names out there all day and be like, I want to work with this guy. I want to work with this guy. I want to work with this guy. You know. There is a plethora of, of great talent out there. And I just had to ask this one question from the WWE days because I know you've probably heard it a few times in any of the other interviews. But what was the real truth behind that backstage quote unquote fight with Sin Cara? Did that kind of really go down? Was there really an incident with you guys, or was that just blown up by the interview? He threw a cocaine at me. That that was it. It was a. Uh... 
basically, uh, Jorge and I would go back and forth with just sort of little digs at each other for fun. Um, I didn't realize how sensitive he was. I, I found that out later that uh, a lot of the stories about him, they all have the same basic setup and payoff, which is that he goes back and forth to someone, they get the upper hand verbally, and he cheap shots them because he gets angry. Uh, the famous one about him beating up Seamus, what had actually happened was it was in the trainer's room and Seamus was on the medical table getting his ankle taped. And Jorge ran up and punched him. So literally, Seamus is like in no sort of a defensible position. It's not like he's, he's like standing on his own two feet looking dead at him. It's like he's, you know, sitting there on a table getting his ankle taped and Jorge runs up and punches him for that because he got a good one in as far as the insults went. It was, much, it was pretty much the same thing that happened with me and him was we were sort of trading little digs, you know, and I got one in that was a bit stiff. And I found out after the fact that I apparently hit a nerve because of some stuff that had happened to him personally that I didn't know about. So uh, I look back down at my plate and all of a sudden I feel my, you know, I just stand up and yell, what the fuck? Because my face started hurting and I couldn't see anything. And I, I just completely, I just didn't know what was going on. And I slowly piecing it together. I'm just like, I smell Diet Coke. Why is my shirt wet? And then my vision started to sort of clear. And as it cleared, I saw Jorge rounding the table and running at me. And he sort of tried to do almost a double leg on me. And I, out of instinct, I reached around his neck and I just basically shoot headlocked him. I grabbed him by around the neck and then I grabbed his tricep. And I pulled him tight to my body and started leaning on him. And I just started going, dude, what the fuck? What the fuck? Because I didn't know what was going on. And then we just got pulled apart. Uh, maybe we were struggling for maybe 10, 15 seconds. And people got involved, pulled us apart, and I'm still wondering what's going on because I have a, obviously a concussion from getting hit in the face. And he's just yelling, you know, fuck you, motherfucker, fuck you. I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Uh, we talked about it after the fact. I complimented him on his throw because he actually hit me dead in the eye with, like, the bottom of the can, which is really impressive. Uh-huh. Uh, now, someone made a joke, actually, I saw on Twitter, where because uh, I guess he threw a chair at Corbin during a match, and they said, if you believe Simon Gotch, uh, Sin Cara actually has really good aim with that chair. <laughs> it's, I believe it, because he, he threw, like, he threw, apparently he threw an underhand, too, like a ninja, like a shuriken, just like from the hip, almost, and it was just caught me dead on. It was, if it hadn't hurt so bad, I would have been more impressed, but it hurt really bad. It was, didn't, I, I genuinely didn't see it coming, so. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, like I said, I, I, it was pretty much the same thing with a lot of the, the the stories about him are kind of exaggerated because whoever leaks them doesn't is never there. I can almost guarantee that. I've, I've heard whispers of who the uh, Meltzer source is. I, I don't say it simply because I have no corroboration. I only have someone saying they think, you know, this is the guy it likely is because of some of the stuff they've heard him say personally versus what Meltzer parrots. Um but uh, a lot of the story, like there's a similar occurrence where I guess in developmental in uh, FCW, Sin Cara got into it. Uh, Jorge did with uh, Bray Wyatt, and it was the same thing. Bray got a good, you know, dig in on him, and Jorge got mad and tried to like double leg Bray. And you know, Bray was an amateur wrestler. His dad was an amateur wrestler, so he he sprawled out and just put his weight on top of him. It's like I ain't moving until he stop. You know, 300 pounds. You know, Jorge's a strong guy, but he ain't that strong. So he was just sort of stuck underneath him until he calmed down. But, uh, yeah, a lot of those stories get blown up. Of course, you know, same thing like the Jericho thing. It was basically Jorge got mad, got, you know, he tried to tackle Jericho. Jericho held him off until such time as they got pulled apart and nothing happened. But that's not the interesting story. You tell the story that's most interesting, you know, because that's what gets you clicks on your website.
Yeah, and that's what I, you know, I really love about what you've been able to give uh, in this interview tonight because there's a lot of stuff that's been said, but you're an open book. I mean, you don't hold back from any questions, and you really you give it as a straight shoot, and that's something that, as interviewers, we can sincerely appreciate. And as we uh, as we start to wrap it up here, you know, you kind of said it before about you know, where you might want to end up back or what you might be doing in the future. But we like to kind of look at somebody like you who's got a lot left to give in the wrestling business. And if you had the crystal ball and you were to look forward five years into the future, what do you see for Simon Grimm? Uh, do we see a return to Simon Gotch, or is Simon Grimm going to continue uh, to kind of build his own story out there in the wild? Well, as I said at the beginning of the interview, um, I, I like when things aren't predictable. And I'm kind of enjoying the fact that I'm not in a predictable position right now. Uh, to say what I could be doing in five years, hopefully I'll obviously still be working full-time. Um, I'd prefer to be in Japan, obviously. Uh, New Japan would be the uh, the uh, ideal place for me, I believe, uh, just stylistically. Um, but then again, I could wind up going back to WWE. I could wind up you know, in re- having served a, a very respectable tour of duty, so to speak, in Ring of Honor. I could have you know, move to England and just start wrestling there full time. There's a million and one things that are open to me. And uh, really the important thing is that I don't know yet. I get to guess. I get to, I get to, uh, to learn along with the rest of the world what's going to happen to me. And that's actually kind of fun. I'm not sitting, you know, I'm not sitting in my plane or my uh, airplane seat anymore waiting to get home just so I can be depressed on my couch for three days and then go back to work. I'm actually excited for what's next now because I really don't know what it is. That's so cool. That's a great uh, great way to look at it. And, yeah, the future is definitely bright for you. And, obviously, we wish you nothing but the best. We appreciate all the stories and everything you're able to share with us tonight. But before we wrap it up, please share with the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling just where they can find anything and everything in the world of Simon Grimm. Well, uh, you can find me, uh, obviously, on Twitter at DeviousJourney. I actually recently changed my Twitter handle, obviously. I'm still at WWE on Instagram because Instagram will actually not let me change my handle, uh, which has been a struggle quite a bit. They, uh, I apparently have to email someone who does not exist, so that's a, that's a challenge. I can also be found, I have an official fan page up on uh, Facebook, uh, which is also uh, just Facebook slash Devious Journey. Um, I have a Pro Wrestling Tees store, which is uh, Pro Wrestling Tees slash Simon Says. I also have a, uh, if you're interested in booking me for a wrestling event, a uh, seminar, if you'd like me to, you know, if you'd like me to host your child's bar mitzvah, uh, I can be found at bookingsimon at yahoo.com. Uh, yeah, and just, you know, obviously, uh, you can find me on wonderful podcasts like the two-man power trip, available on, you can insert the uh, the station or whatever, the, uh, <laughs> your means of promoting this uh, right there with your uh, only on WKNZ, San Diego, whatever you have there. Uh, yeah, just keep an eye out. Obviously, uh, I'll be appearing on Ring of Honor TV. Uh, one of the matches taped will be airing in December, and then uh, who knows? I might be popping up there again soon. Uh, I'm not gonna not gonna spoil anything for anyone because we all like a few surprises here and there. Uh, yeah, just uh, keep your eye out for me. Oh, we will definitely be keeping an eye out. I'm glad when you were talking about the origins of the name Simon and Simon Grimm that you didn't take it from the old uh, SNL sketch of Simon who likes to do drawings. So I was. Uh, I was pretty relieved to hear that it wasn't uh, that, Simon, but that's very cool. I just appreciate everything that you shared tonight. It's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much, man. I'm, I'm glad to have had a chance to talk to you guys, and I hope this has been a worthwhile interview. D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-D-
Dam is bringing the extreme here to the champion. And Rob Van Dam and Pentagon Jr. sharing the same thought now, how to put this guy away. Pentagon Jr. Oh, wow, there it is! Pentagon Driver! Oh! oh! What is this? Oh, oh my God! Van Dam going upstairs. Is he gonna smoke the competition? Five-star Bronx Blast, he hit it! He connected! Yes! Oh my God! A new champion! RVD knows he's got a date with Willie Mack. RVD won't have to wait for 420, because it's coming up on 120, January 20th. We'll see you at Phantasm. Well, joining us on the line is coming to us from the other side of the country and we are ready to hear and talk about PCW refuse to lose with the man behind PCW the one and only Mike Sharnagel thank you so much for joining the two man power trip of wrestling thank you very much that's a uh, that's a great intro for me i appreciate it oh absolutely very excited to talk about PCW very excited to talk about refuse to lose like i said the other side of the country because even though this show goes worldwide, John and I are Northeastern guys, but in knowing professional wrestling, knowing independent wrestling, we've heard the rumblings coming out of the West Coast about PCW. So now as we get you on this big stage, tell us more about PCW and tell us a little bit about Refuse to Lose and what we have to look forward to in this gigantic card that we're going to talk about tonight. Awesome. Well, uh, our, our full name now is PCW Ultra. Uh, and we're based in Los Angeles, California, and we're running shows now uh, going into 2018. We're running shows every six or seven weeks, so 2018 we'll have eight shows. And uh, right now our heavyweight champion is John Hennigan. Uh, many people know him as John Morrison or Johnny Mundo or even now as uh, Johnny Impact. Um, our tag team champions are a group called Warbeast. Uh, which has, among uh, other people involved in it, Kevin Sullivan. And our light heavyweight champion is Douglas James, who's a, uh, a Southern California wrestler. He's a graduate of the, uh, I guess it's pretty famous, uh, Santino Brothers Wrestling Academy uh, here in Southern California, and he's our light heavyweight champion. So all of those champions will be defending their belts this Friday night in Wilmington, California at PCW Refuse to Lose. Yeah, I refuse to lose without a doubt because when you just go through some of those guys that you were naming, I'm actually looking at the promotional card for it. And in addition to some of those great names you've got, I mean, I'm looking at pictures of some of the top talent in the world convey, you know, converging onto PCW. And I'm looking at guys like Brian Cage. I'm looking at guys like Sammy Callahan. And obviously you mentioned John Hennigan or Johnny Impact or whatever you want to call him. He's definitely not a Johnny come lately. He's a great guy to have as your champion. But this roster is so impressive. And I think a lot of people don't realize about California that there is such a a rebirth of professional wrestling that with a roster like that, I'm sure the fans definitely have a lot to look forward to with Refuse to Lose. We have a uh, a great fan base at our event. It's, uh, you know, I know you guys said you're East Coast guys. I, too, am an East Coast guy from New Jersey. And our audience is reminiscent of ECW. Um, from the first bell to the last bell, our fans are up and loud. And it's fantastic because uh, 
you know, as we bring in wrestlers from really all around the world at this point, when they peek their head out of that locker room and they see our crowd, which is, you know, we, we draw a pretty good crowd for an independent promotion, and they feel the energy of that crowd, they get amped up. And I swear, if you watch some of the matches that we have on our on-demand uh, from the last two years, you will see wrestlers going above and beyond what they usually do. And I think it's because of the adrenaline rush they get uh, from that awesome crowd. Yeah, I've, that's, what the, that's what we've heard. That's the buzz is that it's got that vibe to it, that ECW-like vibe. And, when, of course, again, like I'm looking at this card, I see some of those familiar faces from ECW. I see a guy like the Sandman who's going to be trekking out there, and we spent a lot of time with the Sandman lately. And just so the fans know, he as, as, is as Sandman as ever. So, again, another thing that you're in for a huge treat when you see the PCW refuse to lose when you see the Sandman. But we've got to dial it back to Kevin Sullivan. And John and I had the ability to be at WrestleCade in a pretty big capacity this past weekend. And I got to talk to Kevin Sullivan. And the first thing he said to me after not seeing him for a few weeks was, Brother, I've got to talk to you about PCW. So he sat me down. He started to tell me all about PCW and his involvement. So tell me, what does having a guy like Kevin Sullivan involved with PCW mean to the promotion? Um, I mean, Kevin, besides being uh, one of the greatest minds in, you know, arguably wrestling history, um, he is a man that has his finger on the pulse of wrestling and knows trends and he talks to everybody under the sun. So he's very much involved in the wrestling community, which is great for us. Um, Our our booker, uh, whose name is Joe, is uh, one of Kevin's, well, really Kevin Sullivan's star pupil, if you will. Um, so that's why when you look at our cards and say, like, wow, this is really good talent, well, Joe learned from Kevin Sullivan. And Kevin Sullivan is, what, the only man to really beat Vince McMahon head-to-head in the Monday Night Wars. You know, one of the guys that was, uh, you know, influential in inventing the NWO. Um, any angle that he... Uh, produces is usually pretty, pretty uh, over with the crowd and, uh, you know, has a long-term life on it. So uh, just his uh, guidance, his uh, words of wisdom, et cetera, uh, you know, it's it's worth a million dollars. Yeah, it really is. He has his finger on the pulse of everything. And, and even in a, in a, you know, conversation that stretched throughout the day, I mean, we hit every single topic you could possibly think of, whether it's past or present in wrestling, and he's so on top of it. And you really, you would think that he's got a hand in every single promotion going because he's still giving you counter ideas to something that's going on on television, or he's giving you something that maybe should happen or will predict something that would happen down the road just because he's been in the trenches for so long. But is Kevin Sullivan a guy that when you think about some of the greatest minds in the business, do you rank Kevin Sullivan right there at the top? Because essentially he's really seen it all. I, I don't see how you couldn't rank him among the, uh, the most brilliant minds in the history of wrestling. I mean, he's, he's amazing. And he's got that long-term history of being amazing. Um, you know, as a little kid, I told him this when I met him, I was like, you know, I was legitimately afraid of you as a little kid. I thought you were the devil. And he was like, how do you know I'm not? And I'm like, all right, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> He's so, all got to yeah, have I mean, it, 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 
yeah, it's it's great having him around, and uh, you know he's a he's an ear uh, when it comes to ideas, and at the same time, uh, he's a voice when he looks at something or looks at a, a group of wrestlers that we have and says, "Hey, you guys may want to try this or do that." Like that's that's the value of Kevin Sullivan, and that's why I said, I mean, his his guidance and knowledge, it, it's worth more than a million dollars. It's priceless. As PCW continues to grow, like you said, eight shows and it's coming up in 2018. It's going to be some big, wild things. But let's talk a little bit about Refuse to Lose and who else will, is going to be on this show. Obviously, you know, um, the Sandman we mentioned is going to be there. We talked about John Morrison, a.k.a. John Hennigan. Who else is going to be a part of this huge show, Refuse to Lose? Sure. I mean, you mentioned Brian Cage. Brian Cage is going to be wrestling Alexander Hammerstone. Um, who, if your fans are not aware of Alexander Hammerstone, uh, you better become very familiar with him. He is uh, definitely on the WWE's radar. He's been at their trainings uh, or their, you know, their, their tryout camps in Orlando several times. In fact, I want to say it was like two or three weeks ago, he was on the front of their website as one of the guys that they had invited back. Um, he looks like Triple H. He's built like a brick shithouse. And, um, you know, he's a young, hungry guy that uh, improves and learns by leaps and bounds uh, each time we see him. Um, We also have Ethan Page, um, who maybe your uh, listeners are familiar with from uh, Evolve. Now he's kind of the, uh, as he claims himself, the biggest free agent on the market. And he's wrestling Willie Mack, who many people know as the Mack from Lucha Underground. Uh, we also have Brody King, who is a Southern California wrestler who is, uh, I want to say he's about six foot eight, 325 pounds, but uh, besides brawling, he also has the moves of a luchador, which is very, very scary. He's a part of Warbeast, and he's going to be wrestling Joe Graves, uh, who is a legit Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion. Um, let's see, who else? what else am I missing? Uh, Douglas James, who's our light heavyweight champion, is going to be wrestling Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, you know, and I would venture to guess that everybody knows who Zack Sabre Jr. is at this point. Uh, War Beast is wrestling the Sandman and Terry Funk. Um, and we're hoping that that's going to happen. Uh, obviously, from WrestleCade, you're aware that uh, you know Terry got pulled away. But as of now, he's still going to be on our show. Um, any changes to that, obviously, we'll announce when we know, but right now we're planning on having Terry there. And uh, Penta El Zero Miedo, who would be known through Lucha Underground as Pentagon Jr., is going to be challenging uh, John Hennigan for our heavyweight title. So I think I co- covered all of them there. It's, it's seven matches in total. Uh, it's going to be a great night of wrestling, and as I said, those three title matches uh, will definitely be worth watching. Definitely a stacked card, to say the least. And obviously, Zack Sabre Jr., that, that's just a great one. He's arguably the, the best wrestler in the world. Is there somebody, let's just say for the, the common fan, is there somebody you'd point out and say, you got to see this guy? Would it be a, a Brody King? Would it be a Zack Sabre? Who's the guy you kind of like saying, this guy you can't miss? Uh, well, and I do remember I missed one match, and that is uh, Mecha Wolf, who used to go by the name Mr. 450, uh, who's been – also on the WWE's radar. 
Uh, he is wrestling ACH, who has wrestled with New Japan, Ring of Honor, etc. So, I mean, as far as a match goes, that match will probably steal the show because those two guys are outstanding wrestlers, outstanding high flyers, and are matched up so well against one another that I think people will really enjoy that match. Um, when it comes to a wrestler, like a hidden wrestler that somebody may not know, Douglas James is a name to start recognizing. He's a Southern California guy. He's wrestled for us. He's wrestled for um, APW up in San Jose. He's wrestled for Defy uh, in Seattle. He's wrestled for uh, Future Stars of Wrestling in Las Vegas. He's probably a year and a half into his career, and uh, like I said, he holds our light heavyweight title, and he's already beaten uh, Leo Rush. He's beaten, let's see, who else has he beaten recently? I don't know. Zack Sabre Jr. against, uh, you know, Douglas James is going to be a great match. He's, that guy, he, he said it multiple times, the only way someone is taking that belt is if they rip it through his dead hands, which obviously we don't want to see in the ring, uh, but that just tells you the kind of guy he is. He's all gritty. Um, even though he's a high flyer himself, uh, he used to be a uh, mixed martial arts fighter, so he's not afraid to mix it up, and he's not afraid to get bloody. Which is a pretty good formula for somebody that's definitely going to tear down the house and steal the show and, and have a good match. Definitely looking forward to that match. Definitely looking forward to Mecha Wolf, a.k.a. Mr. 450. A lot of these guys are on WWE's radar and things like that, but how do these guys kind of get on your radar? Are you scouting these guys? Are you really you know, being smart about who you're picking and who you want to be a part of your shows? Um, as I And I'll give them a giant head. My booker, Joe, is a genius. Um, he books so far ahead that uh, it'll blow your mind. Like, our, we, we've already, um, you know, we have our eight events next year. I think he's already got our entire cards booked into May. So he watches everybody. He knows who's up and coming so that we bring in. His, his mixture is always good, right? We have big-name stars. He brings in younger stars that maybe the West Coast isn't aware of. Um, and he brings them in at the right time. And at the same time, he brings in some local guys that are very good. And then, you know, he brings in some of the stars that uh, maybe have been around for a while that, uh, you know, like a Sandman or a Terry Funk or an MVP, uh, a Rob Van Dam, like a mixture of new talent, older talent, local guys, foreign guys, guys from the East Coast. Like, he's always got his finger on the button of what's going on in wrestling. And like I said, he learned that from Kevin Sullivan. Learning from one of the best and obviously one of the best bookers. Is it pretty good, you know, as far as you're concerned, where, where you're going to put on the main event, like, you know, let's just say, you know, John Hennigan against uh, Pentagon, and you're able to just kind of put that as the main event, but almost say, I don't even know if I'm confident that's going to be the best match, meaning that you're so confident that every match is going to be a show stealer. Is that something going in as a promoter of a show? It's just like, man, these fans are going to be coming back and back and back because I'm not going to let them down in one instance at all throughout the show? Um, yes. Uh, you know, when we look at the main events, like, you're right. Most of these matches could be the main event. Um, so when we finish a show and we kind of look back on it and, you know, I'll take all the feedback from fans. Like, 
I'm the one that answers Facebook messages. I answer emails to our website. So we go through the feedback, and then I'll turn to Joe and, you know, I'll say, hey, that was a great show. What are you going to do better next time? And he's like, well, I actually already have that covered. Like I said, he books things so far in, you know, in advance, and our, our events all are part of storylines. Um, so he has things booked ahead, and he already knows what he's going to do nine steps ahead. So it's pretty awesome to see as a guy. Like, I am not a, a wrestling guy. Like, I love wrestling. I have since I was a kid, but I've never been involved in wrestling other than PCW. And Joe's been around for 20-plus years, grew up in Florida in the locker room with Kevin Sullivan and Dusty Rhodes, and, you know, and all the guys from, uh, you know, Florida. So he's learned from the best. And uh, it's really cool to see when he lays things out. Now, if you're a, you know, like a, a newer PCW fan and you really kind of want to get into it and you really kind of want to, you know, maybe search them things out, what would you kind of send them to, let's say the YouTube page or even the website, PCWUltra.com, what kind of match from, from the past would you say, oh, you got to check out this, this really shows PCW in, in the best light and it's something that we really want to you know, get you hooked. This is what we're going to have you watch. Well, uh, you hit it right on the head. On our website, uh, we have our, a link to our on-demand, and you can watch – uh, it's scary to think, but this is only going to be our 11th show. So you can watch all the, all the previous uh, 10 shows uh, that are available on demand. You can do it via a, a monthly payment, or you can buy the show, or you can rent the shows. Um, so you can watch it all there. If you want to check something out for free, on YouTube, I know we have Douglas James against Joey Janela against Leo Rush. So, if I mean, I've already told you that Douglas James is a guy to watch. Uh, if you watch any independent wrestling, you're probably aware of Joey Janela. And Leo Rush just got signed to NXT. So, that'll tell you something about what kind of match they had. And that's free on our YouTube channel. Great stuff. And you can't go wrong with any of those guys. Obviously, uh, Leo Rush is going to be doing some big things with NXT coming up. But as far as PCW, you know, in the 10-year history that they've had. And, you know, as we start to wind it down a bit here, just was curious, do you have a favorite match? I know it's only 10, 10 shows deep, and, and really you guys are really starting to pick up steam. But besides that match, is there any other matches where you'd say, like, this is my favorite match that we've done or this is the biggest moment that we've had so far? Uh, well, I mean, the biggest the biggest moment that we had was probably – Rob Van Dam beating, uh, then known as Pentagon Jr. His name is Pentazero Miedo now, but Rob Van Dam beating Pentagon for the title. And that was at Clear the Way, which was our last show of last year, so the last show of 2016. Um, I think it surprised people. Uh, first of all, A, that we had Rob Van Dam wrestling for us, and B, that uh, after a tournament in which Penta won the belt, uh, Rob was able to come in and then beat Penta. So the reaction of the crowd, the match itself, uh, you know, Penta is a guy that if you watch him, he is one of the best independent wrestlers in the world today. He can be a luchador. He can, um, you know, wrestle. 
he can work a little bit hardcore and play with the chairs and everything else. He is a chameleon. He can do whatever he wants. And when you put him in the ring with Rob Van Dam, who's also that same kind of guy, uh, you know, it was some pretty cool stuff. Definitely some good stuff. And, and with PCW, having eight shows in 2018, really starting to pick up steam. you got Kevin Sullivan helping out. you got Joe dominating the booking. He's got it so far set out that it's just going to be, you know, really well laid out. The storylines are going to be there, and everything is going to be on point. But what are you kind of looking forward to as far as maybe some surprises, or what is something the fans can look forward to coming up that's really going to knock their socks off? Oh, funny you should ask that. Um, So on our show on Friday, we are going to make a big announcement. It's something that we haven't told anyone about, and um, I think when people hear about it that we will get a lot of eyeballs on it. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, that's going to come out during Refuse to Lose, our big announcement, and it's definitely going to set the tone for, for 2018 and beyond. It's always good to set the tone in professional wrestling, especially making a statement at the end of the year. And it looks like uh, you've already got our interest peaked. So we will be watching and waiting <laughs> to hear this uh, on bated breath. And it's been, uh, this has been quite the endorsement for PCW, but I think this one might send it over the top. And how we usually like to end the, the interviews before we get to the big plug is, you know, when you look down the road, you look into the, uh, the video scope or the crystal ball, and you kind of look five years down the line. I know five years, especially when you're promoting wrestling, that's a long time. But what do you see for PCW? What do you think the future holds for your promotion? And, and obviously, you guys threw ten shows, going on to more and more. You know, you've built a, a really good following, and we, we know you across the country, but what do you think the next five years holds for PCW Ultra? Uh, well, that's that's actually a great question. We, we will be... Um, we will have video distribution somewhere on some medium. Uh, we're, you know, we're already going to be online with iPay-Per-View. Uh, five years down the road, I'm hoping that we have a show on some sort of channel, whether that's a Netflix, a Hulu, an HBO, a Showtime. We already have the concept. It's just a matter of getting someone to say, yes, that is, you guys are exactly right there. It's different from other shows. Um, I believe that we will be on some sort of television-like medium because television really doesn't exist now unless you're watching CBS and you're watching uh, you know, one of their horrible shows. But uh, we will <laughs> definitely be on some I, – I hear commercials for it all the time, and I'm like, who watches this stuff? But um, we will be on some sort of television-like medium, whether it's Netflix, HBO, Showtime, something within five years. And we'll also be out uh, beyond Southern California at that point, whether that's Las Vegas, Arizona, uh, Texas, whatever it is, um, we will be outside of the Pacific, hence our new name, PCW Ultra. That's uh, yeah. That's quite the uh, that's quite the outlook for five years. And obviously, from what we heard tonight, we hope for nothing but the best for all of you guys, and nothing but a great show on December 1st as PCW Ultra presents Refuse to Lose. It is going to be quite the card, but I'm going to hand it over to you to give us the final plug, give us all the information that we need to know, where we can find all the information about the card, 
And for those of us that can't see it, maybe we'll be able to find those results and match photos afterwards. Awesome. Many thanks. So uh, our website is pcwultra.com. All of our social media is pcwultra. So whether you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just look for pcwultra. That's us. Uh, the event is Friday, December 1st. Refuse to lose, and it's in Wilmington, California, which is about five minutes north of Long Beach. Um, the event itself starts at 8 o'clock. If you cannot be there, um, our events are usually up on our on-demand channel. Within seven to ten days afterwards, we get some nice editing done by the brilliant Mike Simmons. He cleans it up, makes it look great, and uh, it's available for download, rental, purchase, whichever way you want to go. We'll have it up there, and uh, you know, I hope we have a great card. And as I said, we have a big surprise that I think uh, many people that are involved in wrestling and I'll be like, oh shoot, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I want to see what happens next. <laughs> yeah, like I said, come on, that's a classic wrestling tease. So we'll leave everybody hanging on that note right there. And, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on with us tonight to talk about PCW, PCW Ultra, Refuse to Lose. And, of course, we wish you nothing but the best and for you guys to have an amazing show coming up here on December 1st. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope uh, after this event and before the next event we can talk again so that way we can talk about our big announcement. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.